This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. No, you are not living in the year 1996, 1997, 1998, 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005, are back. And you might understand. Now, this is a very real concern. Now, if you're a New Yorker, you're already paying too much in taxes. What do you care if the budget is early? What do you care if the budget is late? And uh, believe me, I'm in that boat to some extent. But there are a whole bunch of state workers, thousands of state workers. It might even be tens of thousands, depending on who's included, who they decide is essential and who's not essential. Uh, There are thousands of state workers who are very likely to see their paychecks delayed because Albany lawmakers can't get their act together to pass a budget on time. Now, these are not super wealthy people, and these are not the politicians who are part of the problem to begin with. These are regular middle class, in some cases lower middle class, New Yorkers who are now going to have to put money on their credit card to do things like uh, pay their uh, pay their grocery bill, and they may have to get loans to pay their rent or make their mortgage payments. There are very real implications to the New York State budget being late. Now, you might ask yourself, you could understand why in the years 1995 through uh, 2006, the budget was always late. You could understand that because you had a Republican governor, and a Democratic State Assembly, and a Republican State Senate. And very often, for the last 10 years of that, the Republican State Senate was not on the same page as the Republican governor. So usually for the early part of the Pataki years, not that you need a history lesson from me on state budgets, for the early part of the Pataki years, Pataki and the State Senate, which was for the most part led by Joe Bruno, they were on one side of the equation and Shelley Silver and the Democrats were on the other side of the equation and they'd be at loggerheads with one another. You can understand that. Occasionally, the state Senate Republicans would be on the same side as the state assembly Democrats against the governor. So you could understand that. What it might surprise some people about is, well, look, why now that there's one party control of everything, now that the Democrats control a supermajority in both houses and the governor's mansion, why would there still be budget delays? Well, the answer is to what 
they're actually voting on. And that explains the delay. You see, and this might be this might sound a little bit strange to you, but the state budget is not about the budget. Instead, imagine if Washington worked this way. Imagine whatever piece of legislation you cared about federally, you pick it, whether you're talking COVID stimulus, whether you're talking uh, banning partial birth abortions, whether you're talking, uh, you name it, uh, creating new um, new district courts, uh, whether you're talking about uh, fighting terrorism, any federal law that you can imagine, all lumped into one piece of legislation and you have to vote yes or no on that for hundreds maybe even thousands of public policy implications now that's obviously no way to govern it's no way to run the state and you know i used to be a columnist for a publication called city and state and i wrote about this and Unfortunately, that ship has sailed. It's only gotten worse year after year. So there are all sorts of issues that have nothing to do or very little to do with the actual budget that lawmakers are debating with the governor right now. And we don't know when they're going to come up with a budget deal. Might be a week, might be two weeks, might be three weeks. Who knows? If that might be more. Bail reform is on the table. They're debating about bail reform. They're fighting about uh, bail reform. New York City casinos are on the table. Why? I mean, you think about it. What sense does that make to lump the question of New York City casinos into whether or not we should fund the government or not? It makes no sense. Uh, there should be a separate vote on bail reform. There should be a separate vote on New York City casinos. You ask yourself the question, how did we get the Mario Cuomo bridge? This is why. Because they stick it into the budget. So that you think the Mario Cuomo bridge would ever pass on its own? Of course not. They stick it in at the 11th hour along with a thousand other things. So that's on the table. Uh, SUNY and CUNY reform, that's on the table. Child care, health care, that's on the table. Mayoral control of New York City public schools, which has almost nothing to do with the budget. That's on the table. A tax freeze. At least that has a budgetary implication. That's on the table. Ethics reform. That's on the table. This is all going to be in the state budget. These are all the key sticking points. You know what one of them one of them is? The what I have nicknamed the Buffalo Boondoggle. I spent a lot of time talking about this last week, and I'm not going to repeat everything that I said last week. However, Governor Kathy Hochul's plan to provide hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer money so that the Buffalo Bills can have a new stadium paid for largely by the taxpayers of the state of New York and the taxpayers of Erie County is is an awful plan, in my view. And the more we look at it, and it's not just radio pundits, it's not just right-wingers, it's not just left-wingers that are finding problems with this. Everybody is finding problems with this. And the New York Daily News, which, lest you think I have any fondness for their editorial board, the editorial board of the New York Daily News wrote a brilliant uh, um, editorial over the weekend. And I don't say that lightly. This is an editorial page that once referred to me as a uh, as a hack, a political hack with a talent for wasting taxpayer money and a court jester. 
And yet I am about to quote reverentially the things that they said about the Buffalo boondoggle. A closer reading of Governor Hochul's billion-dollar election year giveaway to her beloved Buffalo Bills shows the deal is even worse than we thought. The Memo of Understanding, signed by New York State, Erie County, and the Bills, lays out in section after section state taxpayers being clipped, blocked, blitzed, and sacked. I love the football metaphors there. Hochul more than fumbled. She committed an illegal motion being offsides by huddling with the bills against her own team, the taxpayer. The NFL rulebook is long. We could go on forever with puns. But the state will pay $600 million, Erie County another $250 million for the construction of a $1.4 billion new home for the bills. And on top of that, There's the $280 million that the public must put up for upkeep of the new stadium, which we didn't even know about. Now, the county executive in Erie says there's going to be no increase in property taxes. And since the county can't otherwise print or raise money, it's pretty likely that the funds will be coming from Albany, which means you, the taxpayers, throughout the whole state. Although the... the, um, even though we're paying the bills here, the state as landlord for this property gets about zero from this asset. The bills pocket the money from the naming rights, the concessions, the display ads at the stadium, sales or rental of the luxury boxes. How about if we're paying the bills, you cut us in? How about you cut us in from for some of this? The TV broadcast money, even the cash from the game day parking. New York is allowed to hold state events at the stadium. Hochul suggests it could be a vaccine site in a future pandemic. Good. Well, that's something to look forward to, isn't it? Outside of the short NFL season, which is now, I think, only 18 weeks, the Bills also keep the gate from any concerts or monster truck rallies. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Even the non-football games... The Bills get to keep that money, too. Erie County, which owns the current stadium, will be freed from upkeep on that facility. Erie County will no longer be in the football business. No, but New York State will be in a very bad way. This is a disaster. This is a disaster. And you know what makes it even more of a shame? Is that this is now becoming so common. In New York... They are trying to do the same thing, excuse me, in Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia. They are trying to do the same thing for their new, uh, whatever the name of the fo- Washington football team is. It's the Commoners or the Commanders, whatever the, wherever the heck it is. Now, this is going on all over the country. The taxpayers on the hook for a new stadium that the taxpayers don't get to benefit from. Instead, it is the billionaire owners of these teams that get to benefit. We could go around the country and look at example after example of teams that are begging for public subsidies. AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, where the Dallas Cowboys play. $444 million in public funds. In Tennessee, the governor there, $500 million for a new stadium requested. Uh, This is 
going on all over the country. And this is what led me to want to bring this up again, aside from the fact that it's still very much on the table. And I know we have a lot of Albany lawmakers that are listening to us right now as they're up there in Albany. Big shout out to you guys. Appreciate your service. If you want to comment on this, by the way, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. We have Max Blumenthal coming up in uh, about 10 minutes. Looking forward to that. But I found yesterday a piece of legislation that was introduced about a month ago by a um, by a congressman by the name of Don Beyer, a Democrat of Virginia. And there are a number of other co-sponsors of this legislation. It's called the No Tax Subsidies for Stadiums Act of 2022. And initially, when I first heard the title and I heard the description, which basically banning taxpayer subsidies for football stadiums or even baseball stadiums, was my initial reaction was, oh, okay, well, that's a good idea, but I don't think that's something the federal government should be doing. It's really if if a local government wants to be so foolish as to soak their citizens so that their billionaire owner of sports teams can have a shiny new stadium, then who's the federal government to stop a state's stupidity? Or maybe a state is just flush with cash and they can afford to be giving out stadiums. New York is not, by the way. But then I, I looked into this legislation a little bit more and I actually really like it. This no tax subsidies for stadiums act would end the tax-exempt status of municipal bonds that are used to finance professional sports stadiums. Since 2000, subsidies for financing professional sports stadiums have cost taxpayers $4.3 billion, despite the billions of dollars of profits that these sports teams are making each year. Congresswoman Jackie Spire, said, quote, the NFL has proven once again that it can't play by the rules. As such, taxpayers' subsidized municipal bonds should no longer be a reward for the Washington commanders and other teams that continue to operate workplaces that are dens of sexual harassment and sexual abuse. There's no reason why these teams, the average of which went up in value $3.4 billion in 2021, according to Forbes, should have American taxpayers footing any of their bills. It doesn't make economic sense, and it's particularly galling given the league's non-standing failure, excuse me, long-standing failure to address issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Well, put aside the sexual harassment issue for a second. I'm not minimizing it, but I'd like to focus more on the economic and the political implications of it. As I as I described, it's a very, very convenient triangle that happens here. You have a bunch of billionaire owners that spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on lobbyists and um, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on campaign contributions to politicians that control hundreds of billions of dollars. Those politicians then give a gift of hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer money to the billionaire owners. The politicians are happy. They get the campaign contributions. The lobbyists are happy. They get paid. The billionaire owners are happy. They get a shiny new stadium that they didn't have to pay for. Who gets screwed? You do. I like this legislation. And the more I've read about it, the more I'm for it. What say you? 
800-848-WABC. Uh, that's 1-800-848-9222. LQ is in the Bronx. LQ, give me your take on this. Uh, yes, good morning. Good morning. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right uh, about what you're saying. You couldn't be, you hit it the nail, hit it right on spot. I was thinking about how um, with this federal uh, thing, with uh, one of the, uh, I think, Senators Manchin uh, prevented that uh, big thing that they wanted to get uh, with all the pork. Right, are you talking about the uh, the build, build Back Better? Right, and he's standing away. It's the same process. It's, it's on a larger le- level. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, to me, it's even worse because, look, a lot of the things in the Build Back Better bill, you can like them, you can not dislike them. At least a lot of it is ostensibly, whether you agree or not, to benefit the public. This is a direct giveaway to billionaire owners who aren't really struggling right now, are they? So I'm all for this. What say you? We got eight, eight open lines if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Uh, can't wait to talk with Max Blumenthal. Max Blumenthal is the editor of Gray Zone News, a publication which has been covering this Ukraine situation much differently than what you hear in the rest of the mainstream media. Now, Uh, I'm very curious in light of what we heard from people like President Biden, people like Admiral Kirby, uh, others yesterday alleging and ostensibly showing proof of uh, some very serious war crimes committed by the Russians yesterday. So we're going to get into that in a big way with uh, with Max Blumenthal and get his take on what the American reaction could be, because, look, I think a lot of Americans we look at these images and we think, well, that's horrible. Don't we have to do something? How can we just sit by and let this happen? If we do something, what should the something be? Does that mean military aid for the Ukrainians? Does it mean humanitarian aid for the Ukrainians? Does it mean something else? We're going to explore that with Max Blumenthal, and he'll provide, I think, a critical lens and a critical look at some of the media coverage we've been seeing thus far. Alex on Long Island. Hello, Max. Hello, Alex. Hey, Frank, why are you skirting around the other subject? Why don't you say that, you know, these politicians are also in on these deals? You you know, you know, they're, they're in on the construction. They're in, you know, through their families, through their connections. You know, it's not just that they're getting a couple hundred thousand dollars in campaign donations. They themselves are making millions of dollars on on the deal. You well, know, when when yeah. Wang wanted to put a hockey stadium in Long Island, he wouldn't play ball with the Hempstead uh, controllers. He didn't want to use uh, her brother's construction company. And guess what? He, he, and, he, and he was going to pay for the whole thing himself, and they just even wouldn't give him the permit. Well, you know, you're actually right, Alex. And I wasn't going to mention that because, in the interest of time, but you're right. Kathy Hochul's husband's company could benefit significantly from this new Bills stadium because um, even though she supposedly recused herself from any business that deals with her husband, but her husband uh, has this, this company that is in a position, he's a senior vice president and general counsel for Delaware North, the major food concessionaire at the Buffalo Bills stadium. The company stands to benefit enormously from another 30 years of work at the new stadium if Bill Buffalo-based firms 
if if that firm keeps the contract, what you think they're going to get rid of them now? Now that his his wife is the governor, I don't think so. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Joe is on Staten Island. Hello, Joe. Hey, how you doing? There? I was just wondering, uh, can we move on from this subject and go on to something else? Well, no, no, we can't. Not until the budget is passed. Because right now, I'm trying to save uh, the taxpayers of the state of New York hundreds of millions of dollars, and uh, there's there's actually federal legislation to save taxpayers in other states. The same thing. So no. Uh, once the budget's passed, it's a done deal. Taxpayers have gotten screwed. But until it's a done deal, I'm still going to shout loudly in defense of the taxpayers. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, Bill is in purchase. Hello, Bill. Uh, Frank, uh, I'm outraged by what you're saying. And um, I just, uh, but, but, well, what can we do about it? That's the thing. I, I think, unfortunately, I know it sounds trite and uh, in, and, and ineffective, but what I would do is contact yeah. your state legislators and tell them to make sure this is not included in the state budget. Uh, that's the only, let me ask you a question. That's the only way that's Let me ask you a question. This, this, uh, the budget, and, and, and you're saying that, you know, it's not really a budget. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a big vote. About right. It's an omnibus things. policy-making when document. When is that going to yes. why, why can't that change? It will never – it will not change in the foreseeable future, and here's why. Because um, if, if Kathy Hochul wins, um, she is going to keep doing the same thing because this is the only way that she gets to implement her policy. Now, all of the Republicans that I've spoken to so far that are running for governor – Whenever I ask them the question of how on bail reform or anything else, every single one of them has said they're going to use the budget process the same way to get their agenda enacted. This is all a result. There was a court decision uh, in a case called uh, Silver v. Pataki, and that court decision was wrongly decided, in my opinion. And um, the, the legislature went to court and they said, look, you can't do this. You can't throw all this garbage into the budget. It should be a, a financial document. And um, yeah. that was yes. a losing argument, and, and it's only gotten worse since then. Is, there gonna, is, she, gonna, is she going to uh, have to uh, debate anybody coming up? I would imagine. I'm curious to see if she debates either of her, her, her primary opponents, Tom Swazi and Jamani Williams, because that would be yeah. actually an interesting debate. And then in the general yeah. election, I'm sure we'll see at least one debate. But she's, she's under no legal requirement to, but usually no, you know. get at least one. Right. Okay. Thanks, Frank. Thank you, Bill. And we got one in the last gubernatorial election. Jim is in Trenton. Hello, Jim. Oh, yeah. Hi, Frank. Um, uh, First of all, I think this is an excellent subject that you brought up regarding the stadium, because over the years, and I've been a sports fan a long time, there have been a lot of studies regarding uh, stadiums built in municipalities, localities that have been like no economic benefit whatsoever the taxpayers. Um, Also, owners can be really fickle and move uh, to another state in a heartbeat. Um, and then thirdly, there was an example of the Miami baseball team. Uh, they, uh, the guy who owned it was in waste management CEO, uh, I think. Uh, I, I, I could be off. But bottom line, they, they built like a beautiful baseball stadium down there. The taxpayers were fleeced. And then the owner didn't want to spend any money on the players and let them just be a uh, 
you know, not a very good team. Well, so the, uh, yeah, you, you're right, Jim, on just about everything. The the only exception is my understanding is with this deal, the Bills would be obliged to remain in Buffalo. They couldn't take the money and run uh, and go to uh, another municipality. But um, but everything else you said is right. And what disturbs me uh, even more about this, Jim, is not only do these financially does this usually turn out to be a net loser for the state, for the municipality, but this fine print that I didn't even know about until this Daily News article that the public is on the hook for another six million dollars annually for the next 30 years to fund upgrades to the stadium. Now, at what point? Do we ask the billionaire owners of the Buffalo Bills to pay some of their own bills? At what point do the taxpayers say enough? It's bad enough that the taxes and the cost of living and the crime are forcing everybody to move out of the state. Of all the things that we're going to spend money on right now, do we really need to be spending it for welfare for billionaires? I know where I'd vote on that. Yeah, and I would just like to say one last thing, Frank, and respectfully, I appreciate what you're saying about the bill having bills having to stay for 30 years. But I mean, I've, I've been around a long time. I've seen owners like wiggle out of like uh, contracts and stuff. I, I mean, I don't know. I anyway, I just don't think it's. I think it's excellent that you're shining light on this, and more power to you. Because, Th- thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate uh, that. Thanks. Thank you very much. Well, we'll talk Ukraine and Russia in just a moment with. Max Blumenthal from the Gray Zone News. This is a conversation wherever you fall in the political spectrum that you're not going to want to miss. And uh, if I drive you crazy with my Ukraine coverage, listen anyway, because you just might learn something. Coming up a little bit later, we'll look into the mysterious disappearance of Glenn Miller. And don't look now, but yes, another video with yet another UFO sighting. We'll get into that and your calls on a wide variety of subjects. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. For all the talk, and I find most of it pretty on the money, actually, about how polarized the current media environment is, you know, there seems to be one issue that if you look at the conservative networks, if you look at the liberal networks, if you look at the ostensibly objective networks, they all cover pretty much the same way. That is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The narrative on all these networks generally goes something like this. Uh, Vladimir Putin is a Hitlerian-style madman, and he invaded his neighbor, an innocent country that was just minding its own business, and the United States has got to do something. You watch Fox News, with the exception of Tucker Carlson, that's the narrative you get. You watch MSNBC, that's the narrative you get. You watch CNN, that's the narrative you get. 
That's why I am always on the lookout for alternative media organizations that provide differing commentary, that provide a more critical look at some of those facts. And uh, one of those media outlets has been Gray Zone News, and I'm very, very pleased to welcome uh, Max Blumenthal, editor of Gray Zone News, co-host of the Moderate Rebels podcast, and author of the book, The Management of Savagery. Max, thanks for staying up late with us. Thanks for bringing me on, Frank. Now, for folks that aren't familiar with you or uh, the Gray Zone, and we've had your colleague Aaron Mate on before, what exactly is the Gray Zone? Well, we're an alternative independent site. We're we're alternative because corporate media will not tell people the truth. It is basically state media at this point representing certain political factions and mafias, and we just do investigative nonpartisan journalism on some of the most controversial issues, which I think are some of the most important relating to war and peace, which is obviously dictating now our economic future. Do you guys um, have a leaning left, right that you that people should be aware of so they could guard themselves against your propaganda? Yeah, I think everyone who's who fancies themselves on the right should hold up a talisman right now and ward off our left-wing demons. We, <laughs> we, we do come from the left, but the funny thing is, you know, we have a lot of uh, right-leaning readers. We're nonpartisan, and one of the few national hosts that has any of us on is Tucker Carlson. Uh, now, give me your uh, take on the Ukraine situation to date. I realize it's difficult to take 30 years of foreign policy and uh, hundreds of years of history between Ukraine and Russia and boil that down to a uh, 60-second hot take. But uh, given what we've seen over the course of the last five or six weeks, tell me uh, how you think uh, things are going and where your analysis differs from the conventional narrative we've heard in the rest of the media. Yeah, I mean, I'll try to boil it down to 60 seconds. The most important thing to understand is that the Ukrainian government's most potent weapon right now is information warfare, not actual warfare. It is running out of artillery in many places. It's best units in the east of Ukraine. The most contentious areas are surrounded by Russian Russia's military and so it's only hope for victory or holding off the Russians is to bring NATO forces and specifically the US directly into the conflict something the Pentagon does not want to do because the Pentagon does not want to confront a nuclear power and so it's information warfare focuses on dramatic incidents disseminated through western corporate media to your audience and american citizens to build pressure on Joe Biden to actually intervene directly, not just to send weapons, but to actually fight Russian troops directly. And that's why we're hearing all of this news out of Bucha. Mm. We hear about 300 dead in a theater in Mariupol. And the these the stories, one after another, are either proven false or to not exactly be what we were told they were. But that's what is needed in order to trigger a kind of red line, the same thing we saw in Syria with the U.S.-backed Syrian armed opposition, who were not exactly democratic forces. They were there aligned with al-Qaeda. And in Ukraine, we're seeing a lot of these paramilitaries who are incorporated into the Ukrainian military 
are actually themselves neo-Nazis. Uh, well, I want to come back to that because that's been a controversial subject as well. Yeah. But I uh, want to follow up on what you alluded to with these reports that we're seeing out of Buka. What we've yeah. been seeing all day on television and hearing on radio, including from many of my colleagues here at WABC, has been, okay, the Russians sort of retreated out uh, you know, where they were near Kiev, and because they've backed off, we've now been able to get a fuller picture of exactly what happened in Buka, and evidently there's a lot of photographic evidence of war crimes, civilians that have been brutally murdered by the Russian military. Admiral Kirby, the spokesperson for the Department of Defense, talked about these images out of Buka yesterday. I wonder if you can just talk about what you thought this weekend when you saw the first pictures out of Bucha. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a grandfather, and, uh, you know, I just, uh, I had the same reaction I think so many other people did. Um, it, uh, it turned my stomach. It turned my stomach. Not to be outdone, President Biden also got into the war crimes game, calling Vladimir Putin a war criminal. You may remember I got criticized for calling Putin a war criminal. Well, the truth of the matter, you saw what happened in Bucha. This warrants him, he is a war criminal. But we have to gather the information. We have to continue to provide Ukraine with the weapons they need to continue the fight. And we have to gather all the detail so this can be an actual have a war crime trial. This guy is brutal. And what's happening in Bucha is outrageous. And everyone's seen it. Up to Allah. No, I think it is a war crime. Uh, tell me, Max, what, what you know about the images out of Bucha. And is Admiral Kirby, is President Biden right? Are these war crimes? Confirmed anything. In fact, the. The Pentagon that he speaks for has just said that it explicitly stated that it cannot confirm any official story out of Bucha. What we know is that until March 30th, Bucha was controlled by the Russian military. And the BBC and other mainstream Western outlets were reporting in the middle of March that there was intense fighting around Bucha and that Ukrainian forces and Ukrainian authorities were themselves digging graves, kind of like mass graves for those who were killed on the Ukrainian side not execution style, but either through combat or shelling. So when we hear about mass graves, it probably relates to that. On March 30th, Buka's Ukrainian mayor returned. He recorded a video and he said that, you know, we've defeated the Russians. He used a derogatory term for Russians and he didn't refer to any bodies in the streets. Up until April 2nd, when the Ukrainian National Police announced a cleaning operation, a cleanup operation in Buka, they did not refer to any bodies in the streets. And it was on April 2nd that neo-Nazi forces of the so-called Bozeman Brigade of Sergei Kropotkin, who is a notorious neo-Nazi figure from the Azov Battalion, began posting video on their Telegram channels and began referring to people wearing non-blue armbands, which mark Ukrainian forces, including white armbands, and asking permission to shoot them. And you can actually see in these videos people saying, yeah, you have permission to shoot them from these paramilitaries. We don't know what happened next. But what you see in some of these videos and in some of the photographs, in many of them, in fact, are civilians or, or men of military age who are wearing white armbands lying face down who are shot 
The white armbands are what people wore in order to tell Russian forces that they were either friendly or were willing to accept aid. The hardcore nationalist or neo-Nazi elements that have been incorporated into the Ukrainian National Guard see those white armbands as a sign of being Russian spies or collaborators, and they have in the past punished them harshly. In fact, 11 mayors from Ukraine are currently missing right now because they've been accused of Russian sympathies. And one thing that listeners need to understand is 30 percent or so of Ukraine's population are ethnic Russians who have been identified by the government in Kiev as a national security threat. So what we could see in Bucha are people who have been killed for supposed Russian sympathies. They also could have been killed in shelling by Russian or Ukrainian forces and photographed. But right now, we don't know. Even Joe Biden said he doesn't know and there needs to be an investigation. So we need to consider all angles and also consider the fact that Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president who just appeared at the Grammys, is the leading lobbyist right now mm. for a direct U.S. military confrontation with Russia, in other words, World War III. And so he needs us to react to this in a rash way. Now, the other, um, and we're talking with Max Blumenthal, he's the editor of Gray Zone News, also the co-host of the Moderate Rebels podcast. The other story which really struck an emotional chord with many of our listeners and many American audiences was the story about the Russians attacking a hospital which included a maternity ward. A lot of folks say that surely fits the definition of a war crime. What was your analysis of the validity of that story, the supposed maternity ward attack? Well, I think many people listening might think it was wrong for Russia to be in Mariupol at all. And Russia's entry, military incursion into Mariupol led to urban warfare that has turned parts of the city into ruins. I think that's beyond debate. But here we have a hospital and Western media leading with the Associated Press accusing Russia's air force of deliberately targeting a maternity hospital with an airstrike. An eyewitness to this incident, who was the main witness, photographed by the AP, her photo is everywhere. People listening right now, if you if you so of a pregnant woman from Ukraine who is standing in rubble, this is her. And she was evacuated and she delivered testimony of what took place from her perspective. And what she said was that there was shelling in the area. One of the shells hit close to the hospital. It didn't wound her, but there was no airstrike. She was unable to tell if there was an airstrike. And as she was leaving the hospital, which soldiers from the Ukrainian military had occupied, where they had taken their food, She was then photographed against her will by an Associated Press photographer who was a Ukrainian embedded with Ukrainian forces. I mean, essentially a a pro-Kiev propagandist. So basically what she said was that Russia did not deliberately target the hospital and that this was a, a propaganda ploy, another one, in order to tug at Western heartstrings to convince us that we should support direct intervention. Now, she didn't say that explicitly, but what she said stood at stark odds with the story that's been told to us by our media. And so what did the Associated Press do with this witness? A woman who was pregnant, in distress, a victim of war, who was evacuated. They wrote a piece 
attacking her and kind of mocking her in order to salvage the reputation of their own staff that had misreported this story. And we've seen this again and again and again in this conflict, starting with the ghost of Kiev, an imaginary Ukrainian pilot who right. killed 40 Russians. It never happened. And Adam Kinzinger, um, this sort of like rhino Republican from Illinois, tweeted about the heroism of the ghost of Kiev. This is a member of Congress tweeting about an imaginary pilot. So this is the kind of world that we've been thrust into. It's a fake news world. that, And, and fake news, you know, it's bad. But sometimes we can just laugh at it. But here we're teetering on the brink of World War Three. And so it needs to be taken seriously. No, no doubt about it. Um, speaking of world wars, I want to come back to issue mentioned a couple of times, the issue of a neo-Nazi element on the Ukrainian side. A lot of folks dismiss this as sort of pro-Russian propaganda. They think logically, after all, Vladimir Zelensky is Jewish. Why would he be in any sort of partnership with neo-Nazis groups? Explain that to folks. What do we know for a fact about what role neo-Nazi militias are playing on the pro-Ukraine side? And why would a Jewish president like Zelensky, who has no problem invoking Holocaust analogies, why would he partner with the Nazis? Well, great question. And and, and it's true, uh, Russian state media does make a lot out of this because it's true. The Azov Battalion, which is the most potent fighting force in the Ukrainian National Guard, which has done the bulk of the fighting in Mariupol and is now surrounded, is an officially neo-Nazi organization. They wear Nazi Wolf's Angel and Sonnenrad patches on their uniforms. These were symbols that the SS, the Nazi SS, wore on their uniforms. They believe in a white Christian reconquest of Europe, and they revere the World War II-era Nazi collaborator Stepan Bandera, who is considered the father of Ukrainian nationalism. They make no secret about this. They're not ashamed of it. And Western media has reported on this extensively. Every major Western media outlet has done reporting on their children's camps where they indoctrinate children into neo-Nazi ideology. But now, no one wants to talk about it because Putin poses a great, a greater threat to U.S. hegemony in Eastern Europe. So it's inconvenient. There's no other military in the world I can think of that actually formally incorporates neo-Nazi units from the mm -hmm. Azov Battalion to the Idar Battalion to the right sector into its military, except Ukraine. And the Interior Ministry of Ukraine has incorporated the civilian arm of the Azov Battalion in order to, for example, carry out cleansing operations against Roma people who are sleeping by the train stations in Kiev in order to remove them. So it's a huge problem. And not all Ukrainians support these groups, but they have a monopoly on violence in mm. many places. And so Zelensky might even oppose them himself, but they have been able to intimidate him into submission. And now He's become the war president after campaigning on a platform of peace. President Biden seemingly called for regime change a little more than a week ago and said, uh, for God's sake, uh, Putin can't remain in power. He decided to back off that comment a little bit and say, basically, there's no change in policy. This was just President Biden saying Putin can't remain in power right. in Ukraine. Uh, give me your take on what Biden said, what the implications of that are, and sort of the walk back from Jen Psaki and others. Yeah, it was pretty obvious that Biden was 
kind of going off script in a candid way and expressing the discussions that are had in private within the White House. The goal all along has been regime change in Moscow. Uh, This is expressed in the think tanks in Washington, like RANCORP, which is the unofficial think tank of the Pentagon. Anyone listening now can Google RANCORP's paper, Overextending Russia, which spells out the importance of Ukraine to a policy of regime change in Russia. You know, Canada's government has called for starving out the Russian government through sanctions. Uh, This is just something that's been clearly on the table for a long time. And I think it's something Biden said that makes diplomacy impossible and prevents an exit ramp out of this conflict. And that speaks to the more immediate strategy. I don't think regime change is part of the short-term strategy. The immediate strategy is to drag out this conflict as a proxy war for as long as possible and bleed Russia through Ukraine. But that also means bleeding Ukrainian people. I mean, the comments you played earlier from Biden, where he said, we need to send more weapons to Ukraine because of what we saw in Bukha, that's the strategy. And it's just to fight this war down to the last Ukrainian, which means that the longer this war goes on and the longer that to Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, refuses to meet with his counterpart in Russia, Sergei Lavrov, the more Ukrainians will die. And that is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. I think diplomacy is what needs to be the Absolutely. short-term strategy. Absolutely. Um, I certainly agree with that. Now, why do you think, with the exception of a couple of media uh, media personalities or media allies, why do you think all of the Western media coverage, whether it's from supposed right-wing networks like Newsmax, OAN, and Fox, or supposed left-wing networks, why do you think so much of this coverage about Russia and Ukraine is the same? Usually, at least, there's some semblance of wanting to offer an alternative to the prevailing narrative. Why is that alternative commentary lacking in the news coverage of this Russia-Ukraine situation? Great question. I mean, on the right, you know, with the Sean Hannity's, the Newsmax people, they see Russia as one and the same as the Soviet Union. And it's the, you know, the anti longstanding anti-communist fervor of the kind of mainstream right that animates their perspective, along with a reverence for the U.S. military, even though the rank and file of the U.S. military does not want to fight this war. Then with the the liberal progressive types, they're seeing this entire conflict in light of Russiagate and uh, propagandizing and brainwashing of Trump Russia. For them, it's part of a culture war where Putin is the leader of a global conservative tidal wave of right wing, uh, you know, right wing reactionary ideology. It's so that they're they're unable to see this clearly either. But for both sides and for people in the media, they identify with the American elite more than the American people and the American elite or who are driving mm, this war. They're the ones who are willing. They're the ones who are willing to say that we need higher gas prices and inflation and higher food prices in order to show resolve in the face of Putin. And normal people in America, they do not care about this conflict. They care about feeding their children and being able to put their kids into better schools. And that so so our government and our media have totally forsaken 
the American people in order to fight some war thousands of miles away, a proxy war, a totally cynical proxy war that could be resolved through diplomacy. On Fox News Sunday, uh, Brett Baer did a live interview with the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Interestingly, there was one part of that live interview that did not make the rebroadcast. It was edited out of the rebroadcast, and it also didn't make the YouTube uploads that Fox News puts out on YouTube. This is what Vladimir Zelensky said that was cut out of the rebroadcast and of the YouTube uploads. I would have you clear something up for us. Uh, and this is these reports about the Azov Battalion that is said to be Nazi affiliated organization operating as a militia in your country, uh, said to be committing their own atrocities. What should Americans know about that unit, about those res- reports? So Azov was one of those many battalions. They are what they are. They were defending our country. And later, I want to explain to you. Everything uh, from uh, all the components of those volunteer battalions later uh, were um, incorporated into the, the military of Ukraine. Very interesting. I thought a great question by Brett Baer and a very revealing answer by Zelensky. He didn't sit there and say these people aren't Nazis. He said they are what they are. And I am just blown away that Fox chose to omit that from their rebroadcast of the interview. Yeah. I mean, that's not journalism, is it? That is the antithesis of journalism. And it also shows who Zelensky is. I mean, this is someone who actually never said anything about his Jewish heritage until it became an important propaganda weapon in this conflict. He always tolerated these forces and would meet with them and negotiate with them and take them seriously. And so here you see the real Zelensky, someone who accepts them as part of Ukrainian politics, hardcore neo-Nazis, simply because they're the muscle. And you have Fox News just editing. I mean, and and it's the mainstream wing of Fox News. It's Brett Baer, who's part of the Beltway culture. So they're depriving Americans of the context they need to understand this conflict when we are walking on a knife's edge. There was uh, an article that put you in the basket of deep state conspiracy theories with respect to the Academy Awards and the Will Smith uh, slap. Do you believe that the um, that the Will Smith slap was some sort of a a deep state conspiracy to, uh, I don't know, do something? Well, I actually didn't see this article. Who wrote it? Uh, oh, I'll send I'll send it to you. But um, <laughs> it, it basically uh, it, it alleged that. Uh, oh, and I figured you had gotten asked about this uh, a bunch already. But it essentially says that um, uh, it, it's uh, the author was uh, A.J. Dillon. But it essentially <laughs> says uh, it, it says um, just ask Max Blumenthal, a Putin apologist and the editor of the conspiratorial blog, The Gray Zone. Blumenthal theorized on Twitter that the slap was a manufactured distraction to keep everyone from paying attention to alleged atrocities committed by a unit of the National Guard of Ukraine. Is that a, an act? aside from the hyperbolic descriptions, is that an accurate description of what you think happened at the Oscars? No, I mean, and you can see this character who's like so vicious that he won't even recognize that the gray zone has done more reporting, like field reporting and investigative reporting in a month than he'll do in his entire career. 
he won't even quote what I said, which was just sort of a like a lighthearted rem- comment about how the Will Smith slap had distracted everyone from the Ukraine monomaniacal focus that was imposed on them by corporate media. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. And I just said, just in time for all of the atrocities uh, pouring out about what the Azov Battalion is doing, because it was definitely interrupting the narrative and people were beginning to take note of like a more complicated view of this conflict. But I, I mean, there was there, I don't think there's any evidence that I alleged that Will Smith was conspiring with the Ukrainian government. That's kind of laughable. It it is. It is. I don't even think they think I'm that crazy. (laughs) Max, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, Maybe we could chat again next week about vaccines, Julian Assange and a few other items. Yeah, yeah, let's make it uh, closer to 1 a.m. if possible. (laughs) I'll work on it. I'll work on it. Max, thanks. You're a trooper for staying up this late. All right, thanks, man. Thank you. Max Blumenthal, you want to comment, 800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. We'll squeeze in as many of your calls straight ahead. WABC. This is Panic by the Smiths. This has got to be a Matt Blaze selection, right? No, it's one of mine? Where did I get this from? Where did I get it? Uh, well, all right. Um, if you ever want to know the music we're playing, uh, you can join the Facebook group at Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. Now, um, those of you that are holding, I don't want to rush anybody through um, you know, a, a comment on this. Those of you that are holding, please continue to hold. I will get to you uh, right after the top of the hour because I'm sure some of you want to yell at me. I'm sure some of you want to agree. I'm sure some of you have questions, and it's not fair to you to give you 40 seconds to comment. So I'll just tell you um, one, one of the things I did yesterday afternoon is I was going to the venue that we're having Little Carmine's uh, christening party at to drop off. A, some money to, as a deposit to hold the date. And, you know, it was at the beginning of the day for me, which is the late afternoon. Now, at the beginning of the day, anything before 7 p.m., I'm really not functioning properly. I'm not really firing on all thrusters, especially yesterday. I didn't get very much sleep. And I'm rushing because I had a whole bunch of things to do. I had to go pick up the cat's prescription. I had to go drop off this money. I had to go pick up this, running around like Ricochet Rabbit. And I'm pulling into this this parking spot in this parking lot in a restaurant that I've been to since uh, no exaggeration a thousand times. No exaggeration. I've been going there for uh, 21 years. And lo and behold, I as I'm pulling in, the corner of my vehicle collides with the corner of another vehicle. And I did some noticeable damage. It wasn't serious, but it looked like a super expensive car. So anything you have to do on a super expensive car is, um, a, you know, problematic. So I left them a note with my phone number and my email. 
And uh, I was hoping that maybe this guy's a fan of mine and he'll take pity on me and go to my uncle's auto body shop. Lo and behold, um, I mean, my car was damaged. His car wasn't too bad. Turns out to be the son of a friend of mine, a guy that I used to serve on the community board with. So I know he's not going to go out of his way to rip us off, and he appreciated that I left a note. But let that be a lesson to you. Haste makes waste. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone this is the other side of midnight i'm frank morano i'm not going to spend too much time on this story because i've done it to death um however i do want to provide you because this is a story that i've been covering for a long time i do want to provide you with an update on it uh this comes to us out of the state of new jersey the garden state big shout out to all our friends in new jersey The Speaker of the New Jersey State Assembly is proposing a bill that would mandate schools in New Jersey can start no earlier than 8.30 in the morning. This would be beginning in the year 2024 2025. There's also a companion bill in the state Senate calling for the same thing. Now, I think this is great news. I think if you're looking at what's going on in schools around the country, it's a joke. Uh, Beginning around 645, you go to a lot of schools, you start to see the buildup of cars and buses at school after school. First period starting at 7.30, there's often not a minute to spare to get to class on time. So you have this epidemic of kids coming in late, and you have these children that are just exhausted. They're asleep for the first two hours of the day. They're having breakfast at 10.30, excuse me, lunch at 10.30 in the morning. I have said for years that it is a joke these early school start times needs to end. And I say kudos to you, Speaker of the State Assembly in New Jersey, Craig Coughlin. I'm going to I'm going to suggest this to Andrew Giuliani as soon as he wraps up petitioning, which should be in the next four or five days. As soon as he wraps up petitioning, I am going to suggest this to him that he proposes this for New York and all the other candidates, by the way. I think this is a uh, an important thing for and it's a nonpartisan issue. Kids are exhausted absolutely exhausted. Now, I remember I was talking about 
daylight saving time. And my sister-in-law, Sharon, said, oh, no, I happen to be listening to your show when you were talking about daylight saving time. And you said you're not crazy about your child having to make it to school in the dark, having to try and get to school, walk to school in the dark, which I'm not, by the way. That is an accurate um, reflection of my position. And she said, uh, this is what she said. I'm listening to the other side of midnight. I just finished the daylight saving time segment. You brought up the point that you don't want to see your child going to school in the pitch back black. My question is, why do we have children go to school so early in the morning to begin with? Experts agree children need more sleep than we do, and it's unhealthy for them to get up so early. Shouldn't we be discussing sending children in at 8 instead of 645? Uh, Sharon's absolutely right. And I've said this before. I didn't, I, I guess I didn't specify it in that segment. So I say more power to you, Craig Coughlin. I hope this passes in New Jersey, and I hope this starts a domino effect of later school start times around the country. This is so important. And I'm curious if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're a grandparent, if you're a student or a former student, what you think about all this. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. I know a lot of you were holding to talk either about the stadium subsidy issue or the Ukraine issue. That's certainly fine as well uh, for everybody else. I'd love for you to comment on this. 800 848 W.A.B.C. Corey's in Brooklyn. Hello, Corey. What's on your mind? Hey, Frank. Uh, This is why I love your show, because I always was under the impression that if uh, the state builds a stadium, that we're going to get something out of it, except for the owners. And apparently that's not the case. Um, But does make sense the, the the law now that they can't use that any longer and uh also there was a caller i don't know when molly was off that had some words you know that she was uh, nasty to molly and not a good screener uh she's never been but cordial and polite with me and contrasting with uh, Curtis's guy. I mean, I waited like half hour, uh, just because he lets people ramble on. But when the guy answered my call, it was like, yeah, what do you want? Really? Who was there? Yeah. What day was that? Saturday or Sunday? I think it was Saturday. Do you, Matt Blaze, do you know who screens for Curtis on uh, his Saturday show? I thought it was a young woman who screened. It, it was a it, gentleman. As far as I know, I've never it heard is. before. Uh huh. He's saying it was a fella. I know they had someone new start yeah. this week because there was all sorts of problems. I heard about some of the things that went out over the air this weekend. Uh, um, Corey, that's important. I'm glad you told me that. And and yeah, Molly's great. Back, yeah, Molly's great. And then I, he completely changed the subject because he had some guy on for a half hour about Nathan's onion rings or whatever. Yeah, well that's that's and that's the Curtis show then, in a nutshell right there. So I had to hang up and then something else came up and I called back. Same thing, yeah, what do you want? And I said, Well, I called in earlier, uh two hours later, now there's a subject I wanna talk about. He says, All right, let me put you on hold. 
30 seconds and I get hung up on. Unbelievable. You know, the same thing happened to me a couple of weeks ago when I tried to call it. I'm, I'm pleased that you told me that, Corey. I'm sorry. I'm glad, Molly, you're one of the few callers that Molly's nice to. Yes, she is. Yeah, good, good. Glad to hear. All right, two open lines if you want to weigh in on this proposal to start school later. This new proposal, if you're just tuning in, would mandate that school times in New Jersey cannot start before 8.30 in the morning. I think I am all for this, 110%. I'd love to see it happen in New York. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. Two open lines if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. Now. Coming up in about a half hour or so, we're going to go through your best and worst mail. We've gotten the snail mail, so we're going to go through the snail mail. But if you want to try and squeeze in a creative email, then you can uh, you can email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. If you want to continue to send us more snail mail, you can do so at uh, P.O. Box 1777. Attention, Frank Morano. That's P.O. Box 1777. Attention, Frank Morano. New York, New York, 10163. It may take us a little bit to get it from the P.O. Box, but we get it eventually. Uh, 800-848-WABC. Norman is in Brooklyn. Hello, Norman. Hi, Frank. Listen, I wanted to just thank you for that interview with Max Blumenthal. I think it, uh, it was a great interview, and I, I, I think it's important that alternative information gets out there about Ukraine and Russia. And um, that's it. I just thank you for that. You're not getting, we're not getting it from anywhere else. And, uh, you know, I was very impressed. Well, that's nice of you to say. Thank you, Norman. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. How are you? Well, I'm, I'm making a living. I'm, I mean, I'm a, a annoyed that I busted up my car, uh, but I'm fine. I know, that's like the worst question to start off with. How are you? <laughs> um, well, I was gonna. I have a different take on the whole uh, Russia-Ukraine thing, and my take was that as a leader of the country, uh, Putin, he was using Ukraine. Um, a lot of the, whether it's legit business or shady business, a lot of things were going through Ukraine for Russia. And when Ukraine started talking that they wanted to get into NATO, then that got Putin worried because he doesn't need NATO on the borders with Russia, interfering with whatever he's doing there. So strategically, he needed to take over certain spots of Ukraine. And I just think, you know, they're just blowing it like he's such an evil dictator. He's such an evil man. He wants to take over all of Ukraine. I think it was more of just like a, a strategy just based on, you know, just Ukraine. Yeah, you know, uh, other people have said that, John. Uh, I still don't think it was necessary. I still don't think it was uh, rational. And I see what you're saying. But uh, look, um, Ukraine had apl- applied for NATO membership going back to uh, at least 15 years. So, uh, I mean, it's not a new problem they're wanting to to join NATO. And basically, I think if Vladimir Putin would have said that would make it, uh, that would be enough, them swearing off NATO to um, 
not invade, I think maybe you could have seen a different result. Maybe they would have withdrawn their application. I agree that uh, the United States sort of goaded Ukraine into this. Um, but uh, in, in my view, still, there's just no excuse for what Vladimir Putin has done. Invading a, a sovereign country like this, um, even if the reports of the maternity ward situation um, turn out to be inaccurate, the brutal man, all these lives lost for what? He didn't need to do it. He didn't need to do it. And um, Biden basically said we were not going to send troops in defense of Ukraine. And that means if we're not sending them to Ukraine, we weren't weren't going to send them to Georgia. So I, I don't I look, I try to see all points of view on this, but I think. Putin is more of a villain than what you're describing. Uh, I'm all for looking at the whole picture, but he didn't need to do this. It was completely inappropriate. Joe is in Ronkonkoma. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, by the way, Molly's awesome. I don't know what people are talking about. Uh, every time I call, she's so nice and polite. And uh, I'm calling about the... Um, the times my daughter's got to get up. Uh, she's in uh, high school. She's got to get up at five twenty in the morning. Her bus stop is at six fifteen. You know. Now my wife doesn't go to work until nine. I'm at work right now, so one of us has got to make sure that we're someone's home and up to make sure she's you know getting ready to uh, get on the bus. And she's half asleep. And then she, and she's at school till five thirty at night because she plays after school sports. And uh, I think it's ridiculous, you know. Needless to say, you're all for this uh, decision or oh. this proposal to start schools later. Oh, yeah. Uh, by the way, I was listening over the weekend. Uh, I think it was 4 o'clock when that caller called in and dropped the F-bomb on the radio. And I was like, holy, you know, I was like, I couldn't believe it. I know that would never happen on your show. You know, you're, you're, you're really good. You would have probably dumped the call way before that. But it was clear as bell. Uh, I heard it uh, around 4 o'clock on Saturday. The whole screener was horrible. Yeah, well, look, you know, we have the A-team on this show. Yep. Curtis gets, like, the leftovers. He gets, like, the, the people that they can't that can't get work on any other shift. They all end up, you know, Curtis's show is sort of a, a staff dumping ground. Uh, the people that are not competent to work on any of the good shows, they end up on Curtis's show. So you can understand why there are so many mistakes. Wow. Brian is in Connecticut. Hello, Brian. Good morning, Frank. Um, I'm all for this whole school thing starting later. I remember back when I was in high school, uh, back in about 2012 to 2016, I used to be starting at 725 in the morning, and there were times I was falling asleep in the first oh, second period same. because I was just so tired. And the teachers, I mean, they, they were not even better. They're like, oh, why are you all falling asleep? Well, it's super early. If you want me to stay up, give me some coffee because that's just how it's going to be. But you know, when I got to college, we're starting around eight, nine o'clock in the morning is when the first uh, periods are starting. So I believe that all schools should go like that, high schools and middle schools. Same here. And uh, I'm curious to see if this legislation catches fire in New Jersey and if we do see it expand to states like Connecticut and New York. Absolutely. Thank you, Brian. 800-848-WABC. That's 800 848 Nine two two two. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, hey, Frank. I just like to thank you and show you my respect for like 
not automatically potting down these, you know, these stories of neo-Nazis over there. You were speaking to someone on the ground a couple of times, the guy who said he was an admitted communist. Okay, so what? But he was saying that, too, that there are, there are these Nazi paramilitaries over there, these neo-Nazis. And, like, you're, luckily, thankfully, you're not the only one on the station that's just dis- dismissing this stuff. So, you know, if, you, if all you have to dismiss it is with, oh, well, the president's Jewish. Well, you know, my cat's gray. I mean, so what? What does it have to do with anything? You know? Um, and you were talking about Aramate debunked the, the, the Syrian nerve gas story. And you were talking about the neo, the maternity wards. This is, do you remember during the Kuwait um, desert, uh, shield, desert storm, when, uh, a young lady came forward uh, saying that they were disconnecting babies from the Iraqi. Right. Disconnecting was, babies not from the incubator. was not and true. Was not true. turned out to be like Saudi royalty or something. It was all, it was all fake. Yep. I'm not saying it's not, ha- they're not attacking maternity wards, but. You know, the American people are paying attention, some of us. So yeah, I'm not going to be dragged into this. You know? Eric, I'm, I'm so glad that you said all that. And, you know, it was very disturbing on one of the Sunday shows. I can't remember if it was Face the Nation or ABC's this week. Uh, they basically said, all right, the footage we're about to show you was given to <laughs> us by Ukraine. We haven't vetted it for any <laughs> credibility. So now they're just willing to show Basically, yeah, yeah. any video that comes from a you Ukrainian source <laughs> without confirming yeah. its authenticity. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's, it certainly is. Um, Eric, go yeah. ahead. Sure. Well, no. um, oh, God, I forgot what I was going to say. But I just, that, that, it's just that, you know, it's just crazy. And if you, have, if you don't have anything better than, uh, oh, the president's Jewish, then something's really, really wrong. You know, <laughs> because this kind of thing happens all the time. You, you don't know what's going on the, right under your own nose. You know, so, but thanks, Frank. Thank, thank you, you, Eric. 800-848-WABC. Kevin is in New Jersey, uh, where the, this proposal to have schools start later at 830 is, uh, is being proposed. Uh, what's your take on it, Kevin? Yeah, Frank, I believe uh, in my whole adult life, I think this is the first time I've ever agreed with the New Jersey legislature on anything. <laughs> well, <laughs> it hasn't passed yet. Don't don't be so sure. Well, it hasn't passed I yet. I think it will. I think, like you said, it's not partisan. If the, if the Republicans don't get on, and I mean, they have such a majority anyway, There's they have to pass it. I remember when I was in school, we had detention before class, before school. I had to get there, I don't know, it was like 6.30 in the morning or something. I went the very first time I had detention, and I never went back again. And they wrote me up every day. I got suspended. I didn't care. I wasn't going back, no matter what they did. I wasn't going at 6.30 in the morning. It wasn't happening. So they wound up having a meeting at the end of the year. I had so many detentions and everything and a couple suspensions that they just passed me because they knew I wasn't, if they left me back, I wasn't going to do it again anyway. I wasn't coming. So Kevin, if, if, if they have it before school and it's and school starts at eight thirty, it's not so bad. You know what I mean? It's oh, no doubt. Whatever, so, Kevin, you and I are clearly on the same page on this. But let me sort of play devil's advocate here. There's usually two arguments against this proposal whenever it comes up. One is practical and one is about uh, child development. The practical implication is, look, parents need to drop their kids off early so that they can get to work. If they're, if school's not starting until 8.30, then parents are going to have to figure out something different for childcare because it's not unusual to have parents, both parents working. The logistical, that's the logistical concern. The one about child development is, uh, always the, uh, the g- grab them by the, the, the scruff of the neck, sort of, uh, stiffen your, your spine. When you start a job, you're not going to be able to tell your employer what time you want to come in. These kids have to learn to come in when they're assigned to come in. What do you say to both of those, both the practical argument and the child development argument? 
Well, I say that, you know, it's on the parents as far as getting the kids there. You had to worry about the kids' welfare. Getting kids up that early in the morning, like you said, they're half asleep. The first couple hours, they're not paying attention. They can't pay attention. They're, they're half asleep. And then they're eating lunch, like you said, 10, 30, 11 o'clock, whatever it is. You got let the parents figure out a, a way of getting them there, starting later at their job or, or having a family member take the kids. You got to worry about the kids' welfare, I think. So f- for me, that outweighs the parents having to worry about getting to work or whatever. You know. All right, Kevin, I'm with you. Uh, I'd be it, again if people feel differently. Now's the time. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. We have a number of New Jersey legislators that listen to this show. A number of them that are friends of mine. And uh, I'm going to be letting them know how I feel about this, but a lot of them are listening right now. 800-848-WABC, let us go to... But if you do not let us have this table, I am going in and tell my friend Harvey. Harvey? Oh, Harvey! You're going to tell your friend Harvey... Harvey! He's going to tell Harvey. That's a nice name. I like that. That's a nice name, That's Harvey. a nice name, Harvey. I don't care if you tell Harvey. Go ahead and tell him. He's got me mighty scared. I'm shaking to death. Why are we sh- shaking to death, Harvey? Hello. Uh, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Hello. Good morning, good morning. Harvey. Can you hear me? Yes, okay, I can. Good. I'm Harvey. glad you can hear me. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to bring a point out about getting to school early is that bus drivers that pick up most of the kids that go to school uh, have another job, and they have to get to that job, too. So you're going to have a problem getting bus drivers to work. And without bus drivers, you're not going to have kids to go to school. Well, look, that is legitimate because there's already a school bus shortage, a school bus driver shortage. My sister-in-law is a a school bus driver. She doesn't have a second job, but I know a lot of them do. That's a fair point. Uh, That is a fair point, Harvey. I'm not going to disagree with you on that. Lou on Long Island, give me your take. Yes, good uh, morning. Uh, You know, it's just a, 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 a scene of society. These kids are just getting coddled. I got up at 6 o'clock in the morning. You probably did. What was wrong with it? Well, what was wrong with it? You had to do it. You had to do it. That was it. Well, that's always the argument against this. But what was wrong with it, Lou, is that I wasn't learning anything at that beginning of the day. I was asleep for the hour and a half. I was asleep for three hours. (laughs) Right. But so wouldn't it make sense to have school start around the time when kids are awake and able to absorb some of the information they're getting? I don't think it's possible in today's time with people's work schedules. You know, every everybody, there's two earners at every household nowadays. Yeah. It's not like when I grew up, my mom was home, you know. Well, that's always the argument against this, uh, Lou. So who knows? We'll see what happens. 800-848-WABC. You're welcome to comment on this on the uh, Russia situation, on the public subsidy situation, on my car situation, whatever you want to comment on that we've covered thus far. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll go through the mail straight ahead. W-A-B-C. Michael Jackson, Working Day and Night. That's our theme song here on this show. We are Working Day and Night. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. If you want to email me, you can do so at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. 
You can also uh, send us a mail at P.O. Box 1777. Attention, Frank Morano, New York, New York. Uh, it is time for... of correspondence is an electronic email to my personal email, actually. My personal email address. This comes to us from my elementary school chum, Eric Balson, who's been a good friend of mine for a long time, who writes, listening to the show RN. That's the subject. Listening to the show RN, exclamation point. Frank, sorry to hear about your car. Hope you're all right. Yeah, it's fine. It's just... Busted up a little bit. It was trying to get into a parking spot, and the car next to me didn't seem to want to get out of its way. Gonna try to tune in more often. I'm usually up. Would love to catch up one day. Plus, I'm not. I'm also not sure this is an active email. Best, Eric. Yes, Eric. This is an active email. And from what I remember, you've been known to play ping pong once in a while. So I'm working on putting together this big ping pong invitational tournament. So let's correspond on getting you involved in that as well. Now. This is an email from Anthony, uh, who, uh, subject, suggestion for your restaurant bucket list. Hello, Frank. My name's Tony. I think you would like Joe's of Avenue U in Brooklyn. They are a focaccia, similar to Ferdinando's that was mentioned by a few people Friday morning, April 1st. I was listening and enjoying the show. I really enjoy their Pinelli special, and my wife enjoys their caponata. Back in the day, when you said Manhattan special meant only coffee soda, which we also enjoyed with our meal. If you can reach out to my friend John Orsini, and then he gives his email, as he has many fond memories of Forlini's and was very disappointed about hearing they were closing, too. Now, I mean, this is a very nice email. I've been to Joe's and Avenue U, both in Brooklyn and when they were briefly open in Staten Island. It's a great place. They're great sandwiches. But I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say to this fella, John Orsini. What am I supposed to say? John, a restaurant I've never met you, and you may not even know who I am. But sorry that a restaurant we both like. What am I supposed to say to him? I'm not really sure. So uh, thank you for that nice email, Tony. Uh, that is a great place, though. This is from, uh, I don't, he just gave initials. He didn't give a name. Subject, if you don't like your wife's friends, you just suck it up and bear it. I think you said she does that with yours. Sacrifice is a large part of marriage. If you love her, it should be easy. One of the biggest problems in marriage is I and me. We must try to be selfless. Humans are not perfect. We all have our faults. For our spouse allows us to overlook faults. Uh, Important guideline for marriage, just say yes, make her happy. It pays off and comes back. And hopefully you got off to a good start. The old man always said, make sure her last name ends with a vowel and make sure you like her family, especially her mother, who she will likely be turning into at some point. And you would hope her family likes you. You should be more in love with her than yourself. I've been married to the same wife for 43 years, very happily, and would do it over and over. Good luck, and it should be easy, not difficult. Like all else, you have to want to. Remember that Olympic coach, you can do it. CF. Um, you know, I think that's an oversimplification of a lot of things. Uh, topic for discussion is from Alvo Aldo. Hi, Frank. Hurricane Maria. 
wrecked destruction comparable to the Ukraine attack to Puerto Rico. Now, after five or six years, no one talks about the status of the island. Social, economic, to build back and politically. Trump was chastised by the typical progressive agents like the bartender AOC about the aid to Puerto Rico. Is the USA investing in Puerto Rico? Is it a political football? Moreover, nowhere in any media outlet does it reveal what was done with all the debris. That actually is another topic in itself. What is done with the debris from devastation? By the way, I'm not Puerto Rican, just an interested citizen trying to look at my tax dollars. Aldo from Westchester. Thank you. This is from Jonathan. Uh, subject prescriptions. Have one of your assi- have one of your assistants. First of all, I love when people give commands. Have one of your assistants get the number of prescriptions filled over the decades from 1990 to 2000 to 2010, etc., and it will blow your mind. Large pharmaceutical companies are the new drug pushers. Dr. Peter Bregan from Ithaca, New York, will tell you it's out of control. Doctor's first solution is the prescription pad. Yeah, let me ask one of my many assistants uh, to work on that. Uh, blah, it, blah, blah, first, blah, blah, blah. First, I'm going to have to work on hiring some assistants. Uh, this is an email that really, really struck a chord with me this morning, and it really... I'll be honest with you, this email ruined my whole day because I was feeling this way already. And, you know, normally hate mail doesn't bother me or mail that's critical. I don't really care about any of it. Uh, but this is whenever it reinforces something I was already thinking, it does bother me. And this email really got to me. Uh, subject, what's so important at home this morning? And then it goes into the email itself that Rachel can't take care of with Carmine. It's only one day. If I were Sal and you didn't show up at 10 o'clock, I'd dump you. You're no friend. I really did feel guilty about not being at Sal's trial this morning. There's an article on that trial in Newsmax and in the Daily News. But um, unfortunately, with my wife working and with me having these crazy hours, I have to watch the baby in the morning and I have to sleep so that I can be at least semi-coherent at 2.30 in the morning. Do you hear the ridiculous things that I say for the four hours of this show? Can you imagine me doing it without any sleep? Can you imagine how incoherent I'd be? I mean, again, I love Sal, and I feel bad for what he's going through. But, the, I mean, if Sal is my friend, he's got to understand my need to be a father and to sleep. Um, so this is from Ernest. Subject email. I am supposedly on your list, and as far as I can tell, I've never received anything. What's up with that, so to speak? Ayo. So, uh, Ernest, what I would suggest is check your spam filter. You should have at least, at the very least, gotten a New Year's Eve Eve invitation. That's the one that everybody got. Check the spam filter. Uh, I do have to start being a little bit more on top of sending out emails. Um, so I'm going to try and do do that. Although, you know, when it comes to promotion or to preparing for that day's show, usually I err towards preparing for the that day's show. But I have to make it more of a part of my weekend routine. It's just I also have to try and find more hours in the day. I'm not going to read this whole email. This is uh, this is not an email, actually. It's typewritten. It's good old-fashioned snail mail from Wallace Cheatham. Uh, Wallace Cheatham um, sub- subject is Zelensky is no hero. With full knowledge knowing that President Putin was strongly opposed to Ukraine joining NATO and expanding to its borders, Zelensky nevertheless courted and embraced these elements thus precipitating Russia's invasion of his country. The invasion was caused by the reckless stupidity of Zelensky, who showed poor judgment and no real concern for the consequences to his people. And then he goes on and on. 
and um, rehashes some of the other issues that we've been covering. All right, this is something. Um, this is from Anna in New York City, and it's an Amazon gift card along with some cappuccino candy, which looks interesting. Um, Copico cappuccino candy for Frank. These are something to suck on to keep your throat moist. They have a little coffee in them, but not too much. I'm staying away from caffeine these days. Uh, so I may, uh, these do look not only delicious, but if they do keep my throat moist, I will try them. But that's very thoughtful, Anna. I appreciate you sending me that nice gift. All right. What is this? Oh, I am liking this. This is a book, uh, an old school book, which I like a lot. The, let's see, it is a book titled The Maxims of La Rocafole. Uh, And let me see the note that has come with this. This is beautiful penmanship here and some nice stationery besides. Uh, Dear Frank Morano, how lovely to hear you quote La Rochefoucauld, a tough one. Maxim 218, you give me such varied radio pleasure that I want to uh, give you this book. Sincerely, Sylvia. All the best to you and yours. Well, that is very thoughtful. I am a sucker for old books, and uh, this is something that I will treasure. Thank you very much. All right, let me uh, open this letter from... uh, um, I don't know that it is signed. Oh, actually, it's from F. Moreno. So it's from me to myself. The return address is is my address. Not my home address, but my work address. Uh, P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. So it's probably someone that doesn't want to be identified. This is what the letter says. You can dislike black people and still not be a racist. Because in many cases, the content of their character sucks. Here's a pin to possibly identify myself in the future. 349812. Well... Uh, species 349812 there's no need uh, for me to identify you in the future you don't have to reach out you can save the cost of postage and I completely disagree with your premise I think it is uh, if you make a decision that you just don't like black people I think you are a racist so that's my view Um, or any other race dear Frank I'm writing to today to invite you to join his eminence Cardinal Timothy Dolan, myself, and the Board of Trustees of the Staten Island Catholic School Region in the Archdiocese of New York to our gala on the evening of May 16th, 2022. Um, now, this, it doesn't look like he's really inviting me. He's asking me to be a member of the host committee, and I'll be tasked with ensuring that two tables are paid for that evening, a table of 10 will be priced at $1,800, and tables with VIP access begin at $2,500. This looks like a form letter from Matthew Mahoney, the gala chairman. I am uh, not going to do this. I appreciate this. Uh, As much as I'd like to hang out with Cardinal Dolan, I right now have $316 in my bank account, and if I'm going to go beg people for money, it's going to be for doing things like paying my mortgage and... uh, Filling my gas tank. All right. This is um, from Sky Lambert of Texas. It's here. It is here. This is big. This is the DVD I have been waiting for 
Thank you, Sky. This is the DVD of Gabriel over the White House. I am going to try and watch this this weekend. This looks great. Oh, this is exciting. My day is now made. I am in a totally different mood now. This is exciting. And the the penultimate letter that we are going to read this morning is from Florida. Bradenton, Florida, I believe. Oh, boy. Uh, This is, okay, this is a collection of a whole bunch of old postcards sent to other people. Uh, yeah, uh, that's right. And Hilton Head Island. We got uh, got a lot of interesting places. I like that. Okay. Uh, this is from Elizabeth, who says, Dear Frank, I enjoyed your conversation about old postcards and letters. Somehow, I have a lot of them. So here are some samples. I enjoy collecting them, especially with messages, a glimpse into other people's lives. The older ones also tell you how efficient and cheap our postcards our post used to be. Deliveries come more than once a day. Just imagine. You can also travel vicariously. I only found one of Atlantic City for you. I'll look for more down here in Florida. There used to be all sorts of thrift stores and antique shows. But in recent years, there are fewer and fewer. Everything is consolidated at Goodwill. I miss dealing with eccentric vendors and customers in dimly lit venues. Uh, Elizabeth's a woman after my own heart. Keep up the great show. I grew up in Nassau County and listened to all the tunes on WABC during the 60s soundtrack of our lives. Now you provide me with valuable insights into New York City politics. You and Curtis are treasures. Well, Elizabeth, let's say uh, you're half right. Uh, I uh, very much appreciate these nice postcards as well. I don't want people to send me old postcards, though, because I have a difficult enough time holding on to my existing correspondence that if I start collecting other people's postcards, my wife uh, will file for an annulment. Now, uh, we have one special letter that was sent to us, but it was not addressed to me. It was addressed, of all people, to our producer, Molly. Molly, what do we have here? We have a lot. Oh, boy. We have a lot to talk about. And, I I mean, you and I have a lot to talk about, but uh, also Jay has a lot to talk about. And he tells me every night, and he calls me many times. And Yeah, what's his deal? A little weird, that guy. So, he... He's calling from Cincinnati. He is a big talk radio buff, and he gives me a little history about talk radio down down that way in Ohio. Um, his observations of the show are incredibly esoteric and uh, almost it's almost like reading a book from the middle of the book. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm not ever quite sure where the thought is coming from or where I'm coming into the thought. Um, and I'd like to remain on the outside of the thought, I think, <laughs> after seeing these. And it, I, I wish and I do not want that to come across as me not enjoying the correspondence because I think it like it's all it's not written. It is. It's all collage. Um, and as you can see, the collage is at times. Oh, boy, it's a woman's a naked woman's breast or topless woman's breast. But it says censored. Well, it's over double censored. There's right. a cover over the he, breast. He put area, a lot of effort. into And this. then there's a second cover over the nipple area. If you remove. So it is it is not only. A, and then it's supposed to be a depiction of of all, all of us. It's a collage. Oh. Oh, so I'm Sean Connery, and uh, Matt is Jean-Claude Van Damme, and you are the topless woman. And I am the topless woman. But you're not actually topless. Uh, 
No, never, never, never at WABC. Right. Um, he also included a gnome, um, which I think I'll leave in in the gnome containment <laughs> device because uh, he informs us that gnomes are real, and I I don't want to open this because I feel like that's an invitation to the gnomes. Agreed. And we don't need any more creatures. That's right. Running around New York City right. these Taking days. Taking my notebooks and um, drinking my tea. So I, I do want to say that it, while this is incredibly creepy. I'm a fan of the creepy. Are you? I, 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 there you have it, Jay in Cincinnati. You got a fan. Uh, be, I would just, just be careful what you send, Molly. You don't want to send anything too too weird. I think that we're at an appropriate weirdness level for what she'll take. No need to jump over that, I don't think. I mean, no need to censor. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, if, right, you're, if an you're adult. Ex- well, I just want to say that if you're going to give me your innermost thoughts and ramblings, give it all to me. Fair enough. You know, I I'm looking at I open these these envelopes, and uh, it's it's uh, a bit like looking into the sun. <laughs> um, duly noted. Duly I, I, noted. I believe in God, but I don't know if He believes in me. <laughs> well done, Molly. Thank you. It's great to have you back. All right, uh, that concludes this portion of. We will continue with your phone calls straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Coming up in about a half hour, we are going to... We are going to explore Glenn Miller, his disappearance, and what happened in the 1940s. An incredible musician who had more uh, number one hits and top ten hits, than more number one hits than Elvis, more top ten hits than the Beatles, and uh, was an incredible performer, and his music lives on. However, I, I, what I, I think many of us may not have an appreciation for is that he did all this before he was 40. I mean, it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Some interesting news regarding New York City's mayor, Eric Adams. Um, You know, he just does stuff like this. Like, I want to like this guy. And he's so crazy that I do like him. And I believe his heart's in the right place. But I feel like every other day he does something which is just crazy. So... He held a um, every single communication from a city agency 
down to notices about cherry blossoms in bloom must now be approved by City Hall. That was what has instructed administration staff, warning that anyone violating his, quote, discipline of message would be fired, according to the audio of a Zoom call obtained by Politico. Do we have any audio of this? No? Okay. Uh, The reason for the new policy that some described as heavy-handed is to counter a gotcha press corps the mayor has already sparred with since taking office. This guy reminds me in some ways of Andrew Cuomo and in some ways of Donald Trump. Um, We don't have the audio, so I'll just quote for you what he said, even though I thought I heard um, Dominic play some of this. Maybe not. The first few months we've noticed that press advisories have gone out or press releases have gone out. And number one, we knew nothing about it or it was something that we were still contemplating here. And that's just not how I operate. There were 50 officials from city agencies on this Zoom call. I'm a big believer in discipline, discipline of message and discipline of action. It's unclear Um, what wayward messaging the mayor was referring to, but several high-ranking officials have recently made statements contrary to his positions. Last month, the mayor said he wanted parents of two- to four-year-olds to decide if their kids would wear face coverings. Then the mayor's new health commissioner said he thought the mask mandate for toddlers should stay in place. Also last month, a fire department official testified at a city council hearing against the use of propane heaters for outdoor dining over safety concerns. Asked about the testimony during a press conference, Adam said, I like outdoor heaters. The FDNY, they work for me. And the final say-so of how we execute my agencies will be determined by me. And then finally, John Miller, a regular guest on the Cats at Night show. The NYPD's Deputy Commissioner for Counterterrorism, Counterterrorism and Intelligence. Pretty important job claim the department never surveilled Muslims in the wake of 9-11. In response, Adams went beyond just acknowledging the surveillance. And then he said, quote, what we did was wrong. We did some things that were wrong, and they will never happen under my administration. Now, Miller, who was also the deputy commissioner of public information, was one of the agency officials on the call, according to one staffer who participated in the briefing and promptly leaked it all over the media. The staffer and six others who listened in acknowledged that most mayors try to control messaging and require agency staff to flag at least some media advisories for City Hall before they're released to the public. But Adams' new city agency press release tracker, where communication officials from dozens of departments must now submit press releases Plans for press conferences or other public statements for approval is beyond the level of message control demanded under previous administrations. You check with City Hall on things, but not at this level, one agency official said. This is crazy. This is crazy. Now, I understand the guy wants to get everybody rowing in the same direction, and he doesn't like the people that work for him are saying things different than what he's saying. I get that. But this is nuts. You know what this is going to result in? You know who the big uh, the, the who this is going to hurt most? You and me. You know why? Because now when there's a snowstorm or a power outage 
rather than the uh, commissioner of sanitation putting out a press release and making himself available for press interviews or the commissioner of office and management and budget, uh, not, not a uh, office of emergency management. We're going to have to go jump through hoops while City Hall approves all these things. I hate this. I hate this in the private sector as well. Um, I've been I've had some employers that have tried to do stuff like this. It never works out well. And this is not going to work out as well. It not work, work out well either, I predict. Now, that's not all for Eric Adams this week. The angry mom who crashed Eric Adams' press conference Monday. Uh, we have audio of the mother. And let's hear. So this mother crashed Eric Adams' press conference Monday to blast him over his mask mandate for toddlers was fired. She was fired afterwards from her job at the city law department. Daniela Jample, who just wanted to call her crazy, be a mom to her two small children, and keep her job. She served as an assistant corporation counsel. She learned she was canned less than an hour after she confronted the mayor over when he would unmask our toddlers. She publicly challenged the mayor at an unrelated event on LGBTQ issues. As Adams stood in front of the banner that read, this is what the banner read. Come to the city where you can say whatever you want. I'm not joking. That's what the banner said. Come to the city where you can say whatever you want. And he fired her for saying, well, gee, maybe three-year-olds shouldn't wear masks. Here was Daniela Jample. Hi, Mr. Mayor. Three weeks ago, you told parents to trust you, that you would unmask our toddlers. Ten days ago, you stood right here and you said that the, the masks would come off on April 4th. That has not happened. You reneged on your promise. And not only did you renege on your promise, you had your lawyers race to court on Friday night to overturn a state court. Said, no, 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 no. Let her, let her finish because you let her start. Go ahead and finish, ma'am. Okay. But you got to come to a conclusion. Can't do it. Okay, get, come to a conclusion and turn on your phone so you can get my answer correctly. But come to a conclusion. Okay. Now, she continued. Now, what you heard from Adams there was very polite. Let her ask the question. Very polite. She continued. How are you back there? March 17th that mm-hmm. you would trust me, I will unask your toddlers. You had your lawyers race to court on Friday night arguing that there would be irreparable harm. If children under five were allowed to take off their masks today, along with their older siblings in school. So my questions are, what is the irreparable harm to children aged two to four taking off their masks, just as they do in Long Island, just as they do in Westchester? When will you and when will you unmask our toddlers? She was informed shortly after that press conference by email that she was fired. You think that was retribution? Uh, I do. Whether it was or not, it certainly looks like it. You can bet this woman is going to army of attorneys begging to represent her in a suit against the city. And you can bet dollars to donuts that the city is going to pay this woman tens of thousands of dollars, maybe more, in your money because of it. Looks to me like the mayor had a temper tantrum 
and fired her for being so impudent as to do the same thing that the people working for him in his own administration are doing, which is exercise a little independence and deviate a little bit from the official standard party line. Now, uh, in fairness, the law department spokesman said that the decision to make, he confirmed, or she, we don't know, he con- she confirmed to the New York Post that Jample was terminated on Monday, although the spokesman said the decision to fire her was made prior to Monday. Quote, we hold all our employees to the highest professional standards. In public statements, Ms. Jample has made troubling claims about her work for the city law department, based on those statements, the decision had been made to terminate her prior to today. Today's events, however, which include her her decision to lie to city hall staff and state she was a journalist at a press conference, demonstrate a disturbing lack of judgment and integrity. As of today, she is no longer an employee of the law department. This is a huge mistake. This woman should not have been fired. 800-848-WABC. Now, a source familiar with the whole matter said Jample appeared to be in good standing with her bosses as recently as mid-February when one of them approved her request for extended maternity leave. The higher-up approved her request and said her colleagues were looking forward to working with her again upon her return. Hmm. I guess they'll be disappointed. Your thoughts on any and all of it, 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222-123. Three open lines. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, Frank. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Uh, good. That's all you can do. Exactly. So, Frank, a few things for you. I heard you talk about the lease on your car. It's almost up and that you're going to be returning it, I think you said. Yeah, I, I think it's almost up. I have to check. I wouldn't return it if I were you. What I would do, because I just did it for my daughter. She had a nineteen, a 2019 Jeep. Right, is try and buy it? I went and bought it. And um, the day I bought it, it was worth 12000 more for me. So if I would took that, if I took the Jeep and sold it, I probably could have made eight or 9000 right away. Take that money and put it down on another lease or buy a car. All right. Well, 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 then, well, well, but I don't understand. Wouldn't I have three cars then if I did that? Well, I thought I didn't know that's the reason that you were getting rid of it. I thought you were getting rid of it because the lease is up. But if you have another car, no, I would buy it, sell it, and keep the money. All right. Well, actually, that's not a bad idea, Al. Uh, I actually will look into that. I'll take a look at uh, what it would cost me to buy. That's actually a very good idea. And you use the money as a five twenty nine for a little Carmenucci there, and you started off that way. Yeah. Well, no, no I've, I've been the- I've been putting a little away uh, each month for him in his uh, five twenty nine. But that's a that's a great suggestion, actually. Frank, it comes quick, quicker than you could think. Uh, that's, that's what everybody says. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Now. I want to ask you about the lady that is on a hunger strike. Is there any uh, update on her? Did she start start eating yet? Uh, no. I, she Latrice Walker, if people don't know what uh, Al is talking about. No. Uh, last I heard uh, a day ago, she is still on this hunger strike to protest Governor Hochul and Mayor Adams' attempts to undo bail reform. 
Right, and nobody cares. Remember the story, Frank. Do you remember the crap story? The guy laying on the floor with a yeah. heart attack. Yep. Everybody played craps around them. They don't care. And the third thing is I need a little bit of information. Tell me exactly what Jerry Mandling is. And is it named after somebody? J- Jerry, I- Jerry, Jerry Mandering, you mean? Mandering. Yeah. Um, yes, it is. It's named after a fella that everybody calls Elbridge Jerry, although he pronounced his name Elbridge Gary. Um, he, Elbridge Jerry was ac- Elbridge Gary was actually the uh, a former vice president. He was vice president to James Madison, and he was the uh, the um, governor of Massachusetts. And there was a political cartoon that took issue with some proposed districts. And this political cartoon is back in the early 19th century. They blamed him for it. So they drew um, the district map in the political cartoon, but they made it into an animal that looked like a salamander. But they said instead of a salamander, it should be called a gerrymander because he was the one to blame for this partisan weird district. That's just amazing how you retain all this knowledge. Well, thank you. You know, it's funny. My my wife asked me the name of a film that we had watched four years ago or three years ago, and I couldn't come up with the name of it. I had to look it up. And she said, oh, oh, mister, I have such a great memory. You got to look that up. You don't remember. I'm shocked that you don't remember. So I don't think my memory is as good as it used to be. But uh, when it comes to gerrymandering, that's one thing that I think even when I'm struck with Alzheimer's, I will remember until my dying day. Well, one last thing for you. Mm-hmm. I hear you speak about Paulinis all the time. Yes. I haven't told uh, no Joe and Derek, and uh, I'm in the bakery business, and we delivered to his uh, restaurant our bread for, uh, well, when I bought the bakery, it was 1984. I was a kid. I was 18 years old. Then the, the people I bought the bakery from, two old Italian guys, they had him for 30 years before that. So it's been in our bakery for approximately 50 years, thereabouts. Um, actually, no, more like, uh, yeah, yeah. So 30 years would be 1954, forward to now, uh, 64 years. They've been in business 79 years, Bolinis. So I was speaking with Joe the other day. I said, Joe, I can't believe it. You're leaving me here like a dog. I got to stay here and fight the windmills. You're, you're cutting out the Florida. So he starts laughing. He says, yeah but I retained the name. He says, so if we ever want to come back in, we're coming back in as Paulini. Oh. And, uh, he, he's not going to do it. I don't think he'll do it because as he explained it to me, he says, you know, there's 12 of us involved in the building, all his cousins, great family. He said, what are we all going to do now? We're all in our 60s and 70s. What are we going to do? So let's sell everything, but we'll keep the name. So I believe that one of their children might pick it up one oh. day. Oh. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, hey, tell Joe, Joe should know me. Tell him I was asking for him, and uh, and I'd love to talk with him uh, about this, either privately or, or on the air. I will call him. You're a good man, Frank. Thanks, Thanks Al. Great call. 800-848-WABC. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hey, good morning. How are you feeling? Great. Doing great. Strong as a bull moose. Good, good. I'm just curious. This uh, This this woman who was fired from uh, the city law office, uh, number one, I wonder if that's a union position. 
It is not. Most city workers. It is not. It is not. Oh, okay. It's just, it strikes me, uh, it's a little discomforting knowing that New York City school teachers who took place in not protests, but riots throughout New York City uh, two years ago were arrested and there were no consequences professionally for them. There were practicing uh, lawyers who were charged and convicted with throwing Molotov cocktails at police vehicles in Brooklyn. Um, they're still allowed to practice law in the state of New York. They're, they were they have not been stripped of their their uh, ability to practice law. But this woman, who I, I wouldn't really say it's unethical to mark yourself as a journalist. No, of course not. Especially everybody, everybody nowadays is a journalist. All you need is a Facebook. Exactly. And you're a journalist. Exactly. I completely agree with you, Jr. Great, great points, and I, I love the dichotomy of. Uh, teachers behaving badly and not keeping their jobs, and this poor woman daring to ask the mayor a, a tough question, and she gets fired. 800-222, that's 1-800-848-WABC. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yes, yes. hi, Brian. I'd like to say that what's going on in Eastern Europe, all the countries in Eastern Europe have to develop one solid language and they they have to become uh, like a United States of Eastern Europe. And in other words, if they're going to survive, in other words, they have to make another country, a big country out of it. And uh, like a look at Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia was held together by Tito. Uh, in other words, we had Marshal Dillon in this country, but they had Marshal Tito over there. But he kept he kept Yugoslavia together. When he died, you everybody with another language all throughout what was Yugoslavia went back to sectionalism, which which is uh, which was a bad thing because now Yugoslavia was better off under one one roof. Now that now that quite to put it bluntly it's wacky well i I, I i hear that look eastern europe first of all you do have the european union number one uh which is more of an economic alliance than a country and you have the commonwealth of independent states uh that's a little bit more pro-russian than um than pro-western but the reason i think that's impractical tom in this day and age and great call and great food for thought is because there's one thing that we've seen on the rise, especially over the last 30 years. That is nationalism. You're seeing all over the world Russians wanting to be Russian. And that's part of what's driving, and again, it's part, I mean, it's a complicated situation, I don't want to oversimplify it. That's part of what's driving the situation in Ukraine, is you have these ethnic Russians in the Donbass region and in Crimea that either wanted to be part of Russia or at least aligned with Russia. You have Ukrainians wanting to be Ukrainian. You have um, Germans wanting to be German. You have a global surge in populism. It's what's driving. I mean, I know there are economic factors as well, 
But it's what's driving the free Quebec movement in Canada. It is what is driving the free Catalonia movement in Spain. It's what's driving the free Venice movement. That's more economic than nationalistic, but nationalism does play a role in Italy is you're seeing you're not seeing ethnicities and nationalities eager to subvert their own national identity and partner with other national ethnic groups to form some bigger, better country like Austria-Hungary or the Ottoman Empire or the Soviet Union. No, you're seeing people wanting their own country. So I, I don't think that that's what any of these these regions that are in dispute, the residents, I don't think that's what most of them would want, respectfully, Tom. But I, I think a lot of what you're talking about can be achieved through some reforms with the EU. You know, I mean, I, I think if you look at how the EU parliament is elected, uh, they do – there's some great things to be said for that. And uh, I think a lot of governments around the country – might take a cue from the EU parliamentary elections. The problem is, who cares who's in the EU parliament? They don't have very much power. But their elections, they do produce interesting results. All right, we're going to explore the disappearance and the life, by the way, of Glenn Miller in just a minute. Oh, let me squeeze in one more call on this uh, city worker who was fired. Steve in Manhattan is standing by. Hello, Steve. Tom from the Bronx is an intellectual genius. All right, Frank. And I know this audience feels I've been ignoring them. But let me tell you something. With your ratings, you should just walk right into the big cat's office and demand the chauffeured limo. Go for broke while you're top of the game, right? And quickly on those kids who – some of these kids – I'd settle for a coffee up, machine. No, nah, no. Nah, get the chauffeured limo. Come on, because you, like you like the little bit of the catnip. So you sit in the back and relax with the light on and – whatever goes on behind those limos. Listen, those kids, eventually, some of them grow up to be night people, so we should have night school for them. I should be in charge of the school board, right? And if they had the first two classes with basketball, I would be there very early in the morning to get to school. Folks, you should realize that Adams is the hard left. Uh, the hard left doesn't play any games. They take no prisoners. That woman was right out of there. There was no debating about that. And if you remember, uh, Adams had some really stupid things to say about some police officers uh, he served with um, back then, and he called them names. you got to remember, too, he said, uh, said something about them. But some of those guys were born in the 50s and 60s. Believe me, he wasn't kicking nobody's butt back then. And the nationalist movement in Europe, I think, uh, Exhibit A is France. People are looking at France mm -hmm. now, and they just don't they, they don't want no part of that. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the French elections this weekend, that's for sure. I mean, we know Macron is going to finish first. The question is who finishes second, and how close is the margin? We'll, we'll, we'll explore that as we get closer. I love French politics. Love paying attention to it. It's such an interesting country. All right. Uh, we're going to talk with a gentleman who is an expert in Glenn Miller in just a moment. Uh, Dennis Sprague will explore the life and disappearance of Glenn Miller. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents... What you're about to hear is not a news broadcast. Perhaps you can help solve the mystery. This is the Morano Mystery. 
This is... This is the great Glenn Miller, one of his many classic songs. And whether you've got a gal in Kalamazoo or not, whether you have boarded the Chattanooga Choo Choo or not, you know the music of Glenn Miller. You've heard it a couple hundred times. And I'll tell you, the mark of an important artist is that his music lives on, or her music lives on after they're gone. To think that we're still listening to these great Glenn Miller songs 80 years later is just extraordinary. In just four years, Glenn Miller scored 16 number one records and 69 top ten hits. Do you know of any other artist that can say that? That's more than Elvis Presley, more than the Beatles did in their career. And uh, by all accounts, Glenn Miller seems like a pretty special human being. However, he was gone at the age of 40. He did all this before he was even 40 years old. What happened to him? Well, his disappearance has been the source of a lot of different theories over the years. And it's been wondered about almost since it happened back in 1944. A gentleman who has studied this backwards and forwards and, uh, in fact, written a book on this is Dennis Sprague. He's an author, a historian, and a broadcaster. Uh, His books include... Glenn Miller, Declassified. Dennis, thanks for getting up early with us. You're welcome. It's good to be with you, and I'm glad that Glenn Miller is back on 770. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Me too. Now, um, for people that um, may not be familiar with uh, Glenn Miller and his music, his life, who was Glenn Miller? How significant was his career as a musician? Well, you have to put him in perspective of his times. He was a band leader. When he was active, the big bands were the top entertainment draw in the United States. The singers really took precedence during and after World War II. But before the war, the bands were really the top draw. And so he competed with people like Tommy Dorsey, Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, and alike. And uh, he was really a sideman working for other people in the 1930s. Started his own band in 1937. He struggled. But by 1939, at places like the Glen Allen Casino in New Rochelle, the Meadowbrook in Cedar Grove, New Jersey, and at the Cafe Rouge of the soon-to-be-demolished Hotel Pennsylvania, he became America's number one band. As you pointed out, he sold all those records on RCA, and he had his own radio program, network radio program on CBS. The uh, remotes were on, of course, NBC's Red and Blue Network. Blue became ABC, hence 770. Mm-hmm. He was on. He was on your air a lot. <laughs> so, but he he hit it big in 1939 and never looked back. And uh, yeah, by 1942, he was the top dog. He was America's number one band, most popular musician, and all of that fame and fortune mattered not to him because America had entered World War II. He felt a great responsibility to particularly the young people that had bought his records. He wanted to do more than just uh, hang out and make money. You know, 
he said, I don't want to do this whole thing on remote control. There's something I owe back to my country and I want to participate. So he enlisted in the army. They assigned him to the army air forces. And I I always tell people this, the army air forces were pretty savvy as far as public relations Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. General Hap Arnold. And they, they put Miller into a slot as kind of their spokesperson. And and, he, and, I mean, that is pretty impressive. Uh, one of the biggest stars in the world selling all these records, doing all these things on radio right. and in recorded sound. And he chose voluntarily to join the military. That's right. He tossed it. Now, he wasn't the only one that did that. Sure. But he was perhaps one of the most prominent people to do it. And, uh, you know, yeah, he he walked away. Now, you have to remember on the other side of that. Because of the war, the bands were decimated by the draft. There was rationing so they couldn't travel as much as they could. And there was a recording strike. A fellow named James Caesar Petrillo, the head of the American Federation of Musicians, struck the recording companies. So he couldn't make records starting in August 1st of 42. So for a lot of reasons, he thought, you know what, I can pick this all up after the war. So, hmm. Well, and I guess, you know, the... The conventional wisdom was that he would have been able to. Now, what is what is he disappeared in 1944? What was the official story at the time of his disappearance, December 15th, 1944? Basically, that he had boarded an airplane on December 15th in the afternoon to fly from England to France. He was flying ahead of his band, the Army Air Forces Orchestra, which they called the American Band of the AEF, was in London uh, making broadcasts over the BBC and the American Forces Network and the Allied Expeditionary Forces Network. And Shafe Supreme Headquarters, run by General Eisenhower, decided that they thought the band should move from London to Paris, which had been liberated and you know, the band had been appearing in person for air bases, Air Force personnel, but Army personnel on leave, ground forces had not seen it. So they thought, you know, we want to get the band closer. And so Miller went on ahead of the band to make arrangements. Um, he boarded this airplane that just vanished. It, it took off in the afternoon. There are reasons why it vanished and uh, all of that. But a week after his disappearance, they announced on Christmas Eve that he was missing. Mm. Nobody else seemed just him. He and the pilot and the and a colonel who's, who uh, he had hitched a ride with, actually. And there were just three of them. And they were never seen. They just vanished. They, they were never seen again. At 40 years old. Yep. Now, uh, you right. researched this thoroughly uh, for your book, Glenn Miller Declassified, and people can get that on your website at Dennis M. Sprague with two G's dot com. That's Dennis M. Sprague dot com. What is your theory? And by the way, this book, as I understand it, was done with the approval of the Miller estate. What's your theory about what happened with Glenn Miller's disappearance? Well, it's actually pretty straightforward. One of two things happened to the airplane. And there's a reason why it became a big mystery, by the way. Uh, one of two things happened, and the Air Force no, knew this in January of 1945. It was an unauthorized flight. Therefore, it wasn't tracked by the air traffic control system, so nobody knew he was aloft. Why was, was it one. unauthorized? Uh, the colonel who Glenn hitched a ride with ordered his pilot on ahead, even though instrument flight clearance had been denied because of the weather. 
Got it. Simple. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And so the airplane was a C-64 Norseman. The plane was built by Nordine Aircraft in Montreal. It was a Canadian bush plane, basically, that the 8th Air Force and 9th Air Force used as, as cargo and people haulers. Uh, they did fly back and forth across the channel uh, safely at 5,000 feet. But on this day, since the pilot went ahead without instrument clearance over the cloud cover, which was 10-10 cloud cover, they flew under the clouds, and they were low. <clears throat> it was icing conditions. It was you know, December in England, it was, you know, 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, one of two things happened. He iced up and went in, or he became disoriented. Remember JFK Jr.? Sure. Off of Nantucket. I yeah. mean, uh, Marcus Vineyard, I'm sorry. And think JFK Jr. getting disoriented. So one of two things, either the mechanical failure, which would be the icing, but that means the pilot put the plane in a position to fail. Or, and or he just flew it into the water, literally just flew, became disoriented and flew it in the water. Wow. Uh, now, one theory that gained a lot of traction that you explored thoroughly in your book had to do with uh, a former Royal Air Force navigator by the name of Fred Shaw. And as the story goes, for people that are unfamiliar with it, in 1956, after seeing the movie biography, The Glenn Miller Story, uh, which I thought was actually a pretty good movie. Uh, Fred Shaw recalled watching a Norseman crash into the channel after being hit either by a bomb or knocked over by a nearby explosive blast as a fleet of Royal Air Force Lancasters, of which he was part, released their bombs into the English Channel. Now, he then looked at his notes and found that this happened the same day that Glenn Miller disappeared. Now, you looked into this Fred Shaw claim. What was your analysis? I gave him an exit ramp. <laughs> I'm, I'm being facetious, but the the exit ramp was that he may have seen something, but it wasn't Miller's plane. Uh, he probably didn't see anything because if you know anything about a Lancaster and where the navigator sat, there was no way he could see below the airplane and see an, an interse- intercepting aircraft five thousand feet below him. But anyway, to make a long story short, the Lancasters were on a mission to Germany that day. A radar bombing mission. They had to return because their fighter escort hadn't been able to rendezvous with them. They were over the channel. They did jettison bombs. In other words, they had to let the bombs go before they came back and landed at their bases for safety reasons and wait. And uh, at about quarter after one that afternoon, they jettisoned the bombs. Um, they happened to miss the jettison area and they were over an air transport route where Miller's plane would have been coming and did apparently around a quarter or three, three o'clock, but they were about 90 minutes ahead of him. And at the time in the American and British records, and even in the stars and stripes, I'm looking at the February 4th stars and stripes. You wouldn't believe this. They hit uh, a ferry flight of other planes that were flying across ahead of Miller's plane. And so it was a case of mistaken identity. It wasn't Miller's plane. It was somebody else. They did miss. They didn't knock anything out of the sky, but they, they scared the living daylights out of some people below mm-hmm. them that were coming across. Because, you know, they're below the clouds, and all of a sudden these bombs start coming through the clouds at them. <laughs> and they're like, what's this? And, so, and they complained at the time, and it was well known that it had happened, but it was not Miller's plane. So something did happen, but it didn't involve Miller. Interesting. Now, there were all sorts of other uh, unsubstantiated theories 
about Glenn Miller's death. One was that he was assassinated after President Eisen, after Dwight Eisenhower, uh, before he was president, sent him on a secret mission to negotiate a peace deal with the Nazis. One was a theory that he died of a heart attack in a brothel after arriving in Paris. Uh, one was right. a theory that his aircraft was hit by bombs being jettisoned by allied bombers returning from an aborted mission to Germany. Uh, did you look into some of these other alternative theories beyond the Fred Shaw theory? Oh sure, all the crackpot stuff. Sure, you have to do that. You have to eliminate all the all the variables and all the rumors. And by the way, a lot of that stuff came up the week he disappeared or the week after he disappeared, because like then, like today, we had a press corps, mm-hmm. and they don't always. I'm just opinion here. You know, the press corps doesn't always get their facts straight. Yeah, I've noticed. Uh, and rumor rumor can crop into their thinking. And so they're sitting around with not much to do. They knew Glenn Miller was gone, so they started yakking amongst themselves. And they thought, well, maybe the Germans captured him, maybe this, maybe that. And so all this stuff cropped up. But here's the funny thing about this. The day after the Allies announced that Miller was missing, German radio, Herr Dr. Goebbels, you know, the Nazis, announced that Miller died in a brothel in Paris. Ah, so I see. So that Paris that began as a, a Nazi rumor. Fake news. <laughs> fake news. Interesting. Even then, fake news. No, no. They, and they were adept at this. They they were they were up to mischief, and they and they said, "Oh no!" He, and they they were just poking skunk. You know, that's what they were doing. But anyway, the brothel thing is nutty because that means he he got over to Paris, and and they lied that he actually arrived. Okay, if that were true. Where was Colonel Bazell and the pilot, flight officer Morgan? Right. They vanished too. So th- you can throw that one out the window. Plus, I had access to Miller's V disc mail r- letters, you know, the little microfilm letters between he and his wife back and forth. He wrote home every day. So, I, I, and his wife, of course, li- of course, at the time lived in Tenafly, New Jersey. Um, so, I, I no, it, that, that wasn't true. And anybody that knew anything about Miller knew that that wasn't in his 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 style. Um, he he was. But the, the other thing about the the secret mission and all that with Eisenhower, um, Miller was a very high profile celebrity. There was no way he could do a clandestine mm. mission because he'd be, he was too visible. Plus, he didn't know the German language at all. He did a broadcast. He did propaganda broadcasts from London um, in the in in what they called phonetic German, where he faked it. You know, he was reading the script, and uh, he sounds – anybody that speaks German knows that he doesn't know it because he sounds terrible speaking in the German language. So now that, that – you know, he was a very popular band leader, but it wasn't as though he um, he had the power to cause the Nazis sure. to quit the war. Makes sense. Plus, by the way, by the way, one thing I would mention, this flight – look at the date. It's December 15th of 44. The next morning – the Germans launched what we now know as the Battle of the Bulge, the offensive in the Ardennes. So within 24 hours of this plane going missing, and nobody knew it was missing because they, they, they weren't tracking it. Um, and that was the other thing. It took them three days to figure out that Miller was gone so that they, they lost him. Uh, the Battle of the Bulge started. So Allied attention was not on a major who played a trombone. It was on stopping the Germans. Right, so, sure. You know, that that kind of distracted him in terms of what was going on. But the biggest thing was that he was not authorized to be on this plane. He was supposed to take official transport. And his direct report who ordered him across ahead of the band 
was a gentleman by the name of Lieutenant Colonel David Niven. That name may sound familiar to some of your right. Well, we remember the actor, David and, Niven, certainly. And Niven, and Niven had no idea that Miller had hitched a ride with Bazell. Otherwise, he would have said, no, you take the, the official transport and don't hitch a ride with somebody in this small plane. We want you coming across in one of the big transport planes that normally fly the route. And they were grounded. And that's what Miller was, you know, that's why Miller was uh, not known. So 72 hours passed. And in those weather conditions, they had 20 minutes in the water if they ditched. And and it looks as though they, they didn't. Now, the reason for the mysteries is real simple. The military investigated the crash. But in World War II, as you might know, a lot of planes went missing, thousands. And they weren't in the habit of sending letters to families, telegrams to families saying, your son messed up and messed his right, navigation sure, up and got lost over the water or flew into the side of the mountain or the Germans shot him out of the sky and we don't have anything because the plane blew up, that kind of stuff. So they sealed it. They did an investigation, a very thorough investigation. They sealed it in January 20th of 1945 and it got put away. And what they basically did was three senior officers in the 8th Air Force lost their jobs. Because the plane should not have been allowed to fly that day, bottom line. Now, since then, has there been any effort to continue the investigation, any effort to maybe find the plane? I imagine it's pretty difficult to find the the remains of the people on board, but is it possible to find the plane at all? It depends on what you mean. It depends on what you mean by find and what, what you might find. If it was a violent accident, that, that is, the plane hit the water at full speed, um, it, it shattered into pieces, and so you're looking for debris. I see. And after, and after 80 years in degradation under the water in the channel, um, you've got an engine block which will still be there. It's metal. The big right engine will be there. But much of the plane was made out of Sitka spruce wood, and it had a steel frame, so all the wood should have, would have been rotted out by now. But you'd have maybe the frame of the plane and the debris. Uh, we kind of think we know where it is. If he followed the if the pilot was on course, we have a direct line of where he could be. There was no debris found on either side of the channel on the French or German, or French, excuse me, or English side. So somewhere in the middle. Is, is this debris. It's shallow water. Um, Robert Ballard wouldn't have a problem finding it in terms of depth. It's not like going after the Bismarck or the Titanic. It's, it's, it's out there. But the problem is, is that you've got shipping lanes going back and forth. Mm. So uh, 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 anybody trying to find it is going to get run over by a tanker or a freighter if they get out there. So you have to you know, be careful. But you, you could find it. But, there's, but do, I, I asked this question um, and and I found out the answer. There's thousands and thousands of pieces of debris littering that channel. I mean, just just World War II alone, all the planes and in the North Sea, all these unexploded bombs that are down there. It's unbelievable. So um, yeah, you you could you could if with patience, time, money, you could eventually find it. Some people have claimed they'd found it off the French coast in the 1970s, but nothing materialized from that. Then again, in the 80s and 90s, there were claims made they'd found the plane, but nobody ever mounted a serious expedition. But yes, it could, in theory, be found. Now, um, so you have no suspicion at all that there was foul play involved? No. Oh, no, it was, it was, it was, it, it was human error and mechanical failure. 
you know, airplane accidents are just that way. And it's, it's a whole bunch of events coming together at once. Miller should never put himself on that plane to begin with. Mm-hmm. But then again, the pilot shouldn't have flown it. And the colonel who ordered the pilot ahead and was trying to impress Glenn by giving him a ride ought to have thought twice about it. But, you know, I look at it this way. The Air Force questioned the state of mind of all three individuals uh, in their report, which we now have. But I'm thinking they didn't look at it that way. They didn't think they were going to commit suicide by going across the water on a bad day. They they were in a rush to get where they were going, and they thought everything was going to be fine. So, what what sparked your interest in Glenn Miller? Oh boy, I've I've had an interest in him my whole life. Um, my parents were both in the entertainment industry. Um, my uh, father was a distant relation of Miller, and uh, well, I you know I was always interested in the music and the era, and then I got into the professional world and uh, became acquainted with uh, not only. Uh, my my predecessor and mentor at the University of Colorado, who ran the Glenn Miller archives, um, but uh, Glenn Miller's son, Steve, and Steve said, you know, I want to put the rest, all the rumors and all the stuff I've had to deal with my whole life. Imagine being this guy's kid. Sure. And, and having to live your whole life with all the stories and all the rumors and all the scurrilous stuff, you know, it was like, okay, come on, let, let's put an end to this. And he said, I think you're the guy to do it. So I went after it. Now, um, what do you think he could have accomplished if he had not disappeared and died at the age of 40? What do you think professionally, musically would have been in store for him? Oh, my goodness. The, the, the sky was the limit. I mean, he would have come back immediately. What would have happened would have been he would he had. Three, he had a contract for three movies with 20th Century Fox. So he would have been in Hollywood making more movies. He made two before he joined the military. Uh, his network radio program um, for Chesterfield Cigarettes, and they, they were sponsors at the time, would have, would have continued. Um, he would have made more records for RCA Victor. Um, it's interesting that he and Elvis had the same label, RCA Victor, but that, that's, he would have just gone on. But his plan really wasn't to continue leading a big band. I think he was he was a savvy guy and a smart businessman, and he could read the tea leaves, and he knew what was going on. I think he would have gone into management. He had plans to hmm. perhaps invest in radio stations. He was going to move full-time from New Jersey where he lived for tax purposes. He, he had lived in, in, in the city, but he moved out to New Jersey in 1939 for tax purposes. Um, he had bought a home, a ranch basically in Southern California. So he, like many in the music business, was 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 gravitating to the West Coast. So mm-hmm. he would have moved to California. I think he would have gotten into management and I think he would have um, developed other talent and other acts and other people. He already had a, a music licensing firm, a music publishing firm, I should say. So I, I think he would have branched out and done a lot. Of uh, on that note, uh, we're going to have to end it there. I appreciate the stroll down memory lane and your insight. Dennis Sprague, thanks very much. You're more than welcome, my friend. Uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Uh, if you want to check out the book, Glenn Miller Declassified, it's available on Amazon, or you can go to Dennis's website, Dennis M. Sprague. Dot com. Questions, comments, thoughts, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Straight ahead. WABC. 
The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Don't go changing just to try to please me. You never let me down before. And don't imagine you're too familiar. And I don't see you anymore. Frank Sinatra doing the stylings of Billy Joel. Doing it pretty well, I must say. I like this. This is kind of an older Frank Sinatra. Uh, That is, uh, a lot of people prefer him younger, but uh, I think it's pretty good. I'd say I am the biggest sucker as a consumer that there is. Now, you got to understand, I don't really cook much. You know, I I make eggs. Beyond that, I'm sort of outside my league and uh, outside my realm of expertise. But we have four monitors on. Um, We have one on Fox, one on CNN, one on New York One, one on MSNBC. And through all four of these monitors throughout the nights that, that we're on here, they have a bunch of commercials. And I can't see, I can't hear what they're saying. I just monitor these commercials and make sure the world has not yet ended. And all four of these monitors have... Throughout the night, infomercials for some cooking or food creating product and infomercials for other things. And now, keep in mind, I never cook, but I am so taken in, not even hearing the audio, seeing these cooking infomercials. I'm thinking, boy, I got to get one of those Gotham set cooking. Look at that. Look at that. I can cook and it doesn't even stick to anything. I can melt candy in the pan and it doesn't even... And then I think to myself as I'm about ready to order it, when am I going to melt candy? And then they have these... Oh, look at that. I can make smoothies with that thing. I, I, Whoever makes these infomercials, they're the most brilliant media producers in the world as far as I'm concerned. I'll tell you what I did just order. A pocket protector. I am always looking for a pen, and it's easy when you have a sports jacket, which I do when it's a little you know, cooler and when I'm slightly thinner, but none of the sports jackets are quite fitting me that well these days. A little bit better now than at the beginning of Lent because I've taken off all my alcohol weight, but um, I, when you're wearing just a, a shirt and no sports jacket, it's tougher to find pens. And I've thought for years, you know, maybe I should have a pocket protector because John Gambling had one. And I, that was always kind of thing. But then, I don't know. I thought, oh, is that too professorish? Is it too nerdish? Well, I said to hell with it. I, I just purchased one. Should arrive in a day or two. So I'm excited, actually, about this pocket protector. I'm not going to go have to hunt for pens in every room because these pens seem to just disappear like crazy. So, uh, hey, those of you that are holding out, Pete, Mike, I will get to you after the top of the hour. Um, For the rest of you, a fascinating story involving, of all things, something very holy. And I mean that in the opposite way of the way you think I mean it. I'll tell you about it 
in just a minute. In uh, the meantime, until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, New York is known for many things. The culture, the people, the, um, you know, the incredible entertainment options, the typical New York grit. But the media capital of the world, sports, but... When you get right down to it, whether you're talking about people that have lived here their whole lives like I have, people that have visited here for a week, people that lived here and moved away, there's one thing that frequently gets mentioned when it comes to New York, and that's the food. And there are a lot of foods that have historically been inexorably linked to New York. Pizza is one, which we've talked about before. But another is the bagel. Really, in many respects, the bagel is, even though I know it's Polish in origin, right? Uh, The bagel, if I were to pick a totally New York food, it might be the bagel. Where I grew up, there are bagel shops seemingly on every corner. Everyone's got a favorite in my neighborhood. You want to see people really, really fight about something? Forget about bringing up the Trump impeachment or Russia versus Ukraine. You ask an Eltingville resident, do you prefer Bagels R Us or Bagel Depot? Lay down that and just get out of the way. And you will see two scorpions doing battle inside of a brandy glass. I mean, people go all out on that question. But this fella, and I have to interview this fella. I just put him on my list of guests, so hopefully uh, Molly and Jennifer can get a hold of him. But this fella has done something really interesting. His name is Mike Varley. He's from Brooklyn, 38 years old. I am betting even the oldest among you, even if you lived here your whole life, even you, and I thought about just saving this for a commendation on Monday, but to me it's too interesting, and I kept finding myself going back to certain aspects of what he did. So I I said maybe other people would be interested in this too. Time Out New York has the article. I'm going to link to it right now on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash moranofan. That's facebook.com slash fan. Mike Varley, at 38 years old, recently completed eating and ranking 
202 bagels from all five boroughs. Now, how cool is that? The Culinary Project is named Everything is Everything, an ode to the fact that every bagel that Varley reviewed was an everything bagel with scallion cream cheese. See, I have questions about that because some people do a very good everything, but some people are known for a specialty bagel. And, you know, my wife likes an everything bagel, but everything bagel is not my thing. I mean, I'll eat it. But I'm, I like a good whole wheat bagel or a pumpernickel. I like the darker the better. I feel like no. Look, let's face it, bagels. No matter what diet you're on, bagels are they're, they're not a health food. It's basically empty calories that are also a holder for more empty calories. But I always figure that when, if I'm getting something with some grains in it, whole wheat or whole grain or multigrain, I feel like it's not so unhealthy. But it's really – I'm sure it's just in my brain that I'm trying to make an unhealthy food somewhat healthy. And then especially as you dump – get got dollops of cream cheese on it and, and some lox. That's how I like it. I like some, some – some, I like scallion cream cheese and lox but uh, with some tomato and some capers. Never toasted, but I um, I respect how anybody likes their bagel. That's the thing with a bagel. Ha- have it how you enjoy it. You like it toasted, fine. It's not my thing, but fine. So the reason he did the same thing, the everything bagel with scallion cream cheese, is he thinks it gave each store enough room to demonstrate what they're capable of, and it's one of the more popular orders. He also wanted a control group, which makes sense. Like uh, if you ever watch the Dave Portnoy pizza reviews, some of which are very entertaining. I haven't watched in a while, but during the pandemic, I watched a whole bunch um, because I was furious that I couldn't go to pizza shops. I had to live vicariously through these Dave Portnoy reviews. So what he does is he gets a plain cheese pizza everywhere he goes, which I also think is unfair to some pizza shops that – have a specialty pizza pie. Now, as striking as the mere thought of devouring over 200 bagels in a mere 13 months is, this is way beyond your typical best of list. What he did, and he's a former video game producer, so I guess he has some some skill with this, he created a map that pinpoints each one of the foods he's tasted. So when you click on a bagel on the map which you can find in the article that I just linked to, you notice the creator's score and the destination's ranking both within a borough-specific list and a wider New York City one. So, for instance, you know, I mentioned that debate of Bagels R Us versus Bagel Depot. He get, he said Bagel Depot, he gave them a 3.75 out of a 5. He said it's number 9 in Staten Island, number 111 in all of New York City. Uh, meantime, if you look at uh, the the other one, Bagels R Us, he gave him a little bit of a higher ranking. He said it's 3.8. That's, uh, you know, Gary from Staten Island. That's his bagel shop of choice. He gave him a 3.83 out of a five. Number seven on Staten Island, number eight in all of New York City. You know, I, I, I don't think he treated the Staten Island bagel shops well. And I think it's because Staten Island has a little bit different type of a bagel than the rest of the city has. 
the highest, the, the number three bagel on Staten Island, uh, the highest ranking one that I've been to, for instance, that he ranked, is the Bagel Hut. He gave them a four out of five. I, I've been there. I, I think they deserved higher than that. And then there were other bagel shops that he didn't give a good review to that I thought were much better. Heartland Bagels, for instance, uh, I thought w- he only gave a 3.83. I think that's a much better score. And then there are other places that he gave a higher score to than I would have. Uh, Tottenville Bagels, he gave them a 4 out of 5, including a 4.25 for the quality of the bagel. Now, I'll answer the question that everybody is, I'm sure, asking. Which place did best? According to Varley, the best bagel place that he surveyed out of 202 bagel shops is Hot Bagels, a.k.a. P&C Bagels, uh, on Metropolitan Avenue in Middle Village. That earned a score of 4.75 out of 5. You know, I've had the bagels from there. I've actually gone out of my way to go there. It's a good bagel. It's a good bagel. In fact, I picked up bagels from there when I was sleeping in Long Island for the Talkers Convention, popped in there on my way back to Staten Island, and then I invited my sister and my cousins all over for bagels. They were all impressed. It is a good bagel, but I'd hold some of the good Staten Island places up to that any day of the week. But here's what he did, which I think was interesting. Toppings aside, Varley says it's important to keep in mind what he refers to as the 10 bagel axioms. I would have called it the 10 bagel commandments, wouldn't you? In fact, what I would have done, because I am a great pontificator, is I would have called it the 10 holy bagel commandments. I mean, wouldn't that have been better? But he calls them the 10 bagel axioms. Who am I to question with somebody that just went through this 202 bagel shops? Here they are. Do not toast a bagel if you know it is hot or fresh. I happen to agree with that. You should only toast a bagel that you've kept in the freezer for a couple of weeks. Two, toasting raises the floor of a bagel but lowers the ceiling. It's true. Bagels from appetizing stores are designed to be eaten with locks. Okay, that's not something I ever thought of. I like locks with any bagel. Stores that put efforts into their spread displays generally make good bagels. You know, I had not thought of that, but that makes sense. That does make sense, and I have noticed that. Higher trafficked stores beget Frequently fresher bagels beget higher traffic stores. So true. That is absolutely right. While some bagels are worth waiting for, never underestimate the pleasure of a 30-second bagel transaction executed by a bagel store pro. That's true as well. Caraway seed. Listen to this. I would never have thought of this. This is interesting, and I'm going to try this. Caraway seed is the best non-standard everything topping and the least used. Huh. Caraway seeds. At their peak, bagels are the barbecue of breakfast. Heavy, savory, and almost too messy to bear. Number nine. 
an irregularly shaped bagel will almost always taste better than a perfectly round bagel. That's interesting, and that's not something I've ever taken note of. But now I will, next to a regularly shaped bagel I have. If you can smell the bagels, you're in the right place. Now, I was looking at this map. I was spending the last 77 seconds during uh, either Frank Diaz or Bob Brown's news, whoever was doing it, I was too distracted, looking up bagels, looking up bagel shops that I was familiar with, and I'm looking up bagel shops near us. For instance, I was looking in Midtown East. He gave Essa Bagel, which is right across the street from us, a very good review. He he has them as the number 14 in Manhattan, number 35 in New York City. The bagel score in that place is 4.5. They call this a bagel of note. He describes it as a beefy bagel, substantial in size and mouth presence, doughy, but not tedious. You know, it's interesting. I like Essa Bagel. I always have. Uh, Our former program director, uh, David, Dave, he remarked he would get a bagel from there that he would enjoy during our Friday meetings. Didn't always offer us bagels, but, you know, there's never a shortage of bagels around here. Mia, when she was here, she used to get bagels. Um, Arthur Idala, when he comes in, he brings bagels. But Dave sort of volunteered without anybody asking him. You know, that Essa bagel, as he's chewing on it, he says that Essa bagel is really terrible. Now, this guy gave the bagel at Essa bagel a 4.5. And Molly, to her credit, even though this was her boss at the time, said, well, what does the guy from Pittsburgh know about bagels? Now, here we are. Dave's back in Pittsburgh. He's not here anymore. And Molly still is. And her review of that Essa bagel was a lot closer to this Mr. Varley than Dave's was. So maybe this list does count for something. I'm not going to go through ranking or naming all 202 of these bagel shops. But if you want to see the map and read about this project, I find it pretty interesting because there's an NFT component to it as well, which I think is interesting. I just linked to the article and the map. Just go to Facebook.com slash Morano fan. But I'm curious if you have any bagel axioms. 800-848-9222. There were a bunch of axioms that I noticed on this list, which I wouldn't have thought of. But many I agree with. Many I just have not noticed. One that I I have, really my only one, I think, beyond don't toast a hot bagel. The only one that I have. I hate it when you go to a bagel shop and let's say you order a bagel with cream cheese or with lox spread uh, or even whitefish. Those are my some of my go-to toppings. The whitefish salad, the lox spread, the just scallion cream cheese or vegetable cream cheese. Eat cream cheese with chives maybe. But I cannot stand when they put half a pound of cream cheese on your bagel where the bagel becomes three inches taller because of all the cream cheese. you ever see that where they put so much cream cheese on it that you're almost just – Tasting just cream cheese? I hate that. So I have to tell them, and then they think they're doing you a favor because it's the same cost a lot of the time. They they slather it on there. No, I tell them just put a little bit of cream cheese on there. Not a lot, just a little bit of cream cheese. That's what I have to tell them.
Also, so I'm curious if you have any bagel axioms that were not mentioned. 800-848-9222. Also, if you have a top spot beyond what was mentioned and what you think of these rankings, if you've been to Essa Bagel in Manhattan, if you've been to, uh, let's see, his top one on Staten Island was, uh, you know, some, some of the Brooklyn spots. Let me tell you the Brooklyn spots that he ranked well. Uh, some of the Brooklyn spots that got high scores were Old Brooklyn Bagel Shop in Prospect Heights, Bagel Boy in Sheepshead Bay, and Bagel Hole in Park Slope. I've been to Bagel Boy, and, you know, I'll never forget, when I was in Bagel Boy, uh, the first time I was there, I was there with my friend Vic Christopher and my friend Eddie Rago. And Eddie said, as he's taken a bite of that Bagel Boy bagel, he was right up the block from the Brooklyn House of Locks at the time, which was not a bagel shop but a hardware store. And Vic and I were shooting a commercial for the Brooklyn House of Locks, and Eddie went to get a bagel from Bagel Boy, takes a bite of it, and he says, this is the best bagel that I've ever had. And he gave me a bite of it because obviously I had to try it if it's the best bagel that he ever had. I thought it was good, but not the best bagel I ever had. No. Uh, I also do like to scoop the inside of the bagel out, which a lot of people seem to think is sacrilege because um, I feel like I'm not getting as much carbs. And this way I can eat another bagel and get and try another spread out on it. That's sort of my bagel methodology. But curious what you think of the top spots that Varley rank, ranked. I'm curious what your top spots are and if you have any of your own bagel axioms. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Uh, before we talk bagels, though, Al has been holding, waiting to comment on Glenn Miller. Hello, Al. Hey, hi, Frank. How are you? Uh, Frank, um, I really enjoyed your uh, interview tonight regarding uh, uh, Glenn Miller and Thank so you. forth. I knew Mrs. Glenn Miller, Helen Miller, who lived in a beautiful home two blocks away from where I sit right now at this moment. Helen generously contributed uh, a lot of money for the purchase of books to our Tenafly Town Library. Uh, Helen always mentioned uh, that Glenn's death over the English Channel was just a sad accident, and she stopped everybody from asking her anything further beyond that. Wow. Interesting. That's an interesting perspective, Al. Thank you. Mikey in Brooklyn, hello. Hey, good morning, Frank. How morning. are you doing? It's really, really good to listen to this show, I'll tell you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and by the way, it's, it's talking about bagels, it's appetizing. <laughs> it is. You know, we did this, uh, the segment on old school New York restaurants last week. We got bagels this week. Uh, we're going to have to increase the food budget on this show because we're making a lot of people hungry. <laughs> but get to the, I'll get to the point. Well, uh, first, I'd just like to comment a little bit on, on just on the Glenn Miller, you know, interview that sure, you had. Sure, And I thought it was really fa- fabulous because I was just a little kid. And the first thing, well, I love music. I had to have a, a little record player. If not, I was devastated if I didn't have my little record player. Glenn Miller, I played till the, till the, till the vinyl became sword dust. I swear, Glenn Miller's music was, it still is. It is the greatest, the greatest. I, I just can't believe that. Who wrote his music, by the way? I didn't catch that. Um, well, I think he wrote a lot of it himself. He did, huh? Yeah. Wow. Well, that that that's that's that, you know that's that, 
it's—it goes with—it goes together with his band. I yeah, mean, you know. I mean, he did have. I'm just looking this up. He did have a staff of arrangers who wrote other originals, but no, he wrote a lot of it himself. Wow, unbelievable. He'll he'll live in everybody's mind. Whoever knew good music, good big band music forever. That's for sure. Did you have a quick and, bagel comment, yeah. Mikey? And also, yeah, I'm gonna get to the bagel real quick. Um, two two places that I really have found. I'm not a big, uh, you know, entrepreneur on bagels, but I'll say I, I love the bagels from Dyker Park Bagels, 86th in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, I've actually been there. That's a quality bagel. A quality That's a bagel. Quality indeed. bagel. I tell you, and also. Frank's Bagels over there on Third Avenue. Uh, there, I've never been to. I'll, yeah, I'll put it on, on my list. Street. I think he's on eighty, eighty-eight between eighty-eighth and eighty-ninth. Whatever the case may be, they both have similar qualities. Interesting. But those bagels, I love a bagel with tomato, cream cheese, tomato, or like um, even like flavored cream cheese. You know, like vegetable cream cheese. Yeah, or... yeah. That's the, you're speaking my language now, Mikey. Mikey, thanks for the call. <laughs> Jim's in Manhattan. Hello, Jim. Yeah, hi, Frank. Um... You know, I am old, but you made me feel really old when it seems to be the case, and tell me if I'm wrong, that you don't know the phrase, rather the term, a schmear. No, of course I know a schmear. Well, then why do you have to tell uh, the person who's making putting the cottage uh, cream cheese on your bagel that you just want a little? You say, a bagel with oh, a schmear. Oh, that's fair. That's, that's fair. Okay. Not bad. Not bad. Okay. Not uh, So, I I, want, so it's, good. it's just that that's... That's the only way we used to order bagels. Yeah. Uh, unless you wanted a lot of cream cheese. Anyway, I enjoy the show. Um, uh, thanks. Thank you, Jim. Keith's in Manhattan. Hello, Keith. Hey, uh, Frank. Good to talk to you again. Uh, Upper West Side. And um, uh, I uh, I think the best bagel experience I have, although I don't order it that way very often, is with cream cheese and a slice of tomato. But um, here on the Upper West Side, on Sunday and Saturday mornings, there's a line outside on the street at Absolute Bagels. They they were a dollar for years, and now they're up to dollar seventy-five. And Absolute is going to be in anybody's top ten list. Wait, which uh, one? Which, Broadway. Which one? Absolute. Absolute bagels. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah uh, I they, mean, the, the line is is crazy. I know he uh, gave them a he gave them a very very high review. Uh, I'll pull that. Yeah, he gave them. Um, uh, let's I'll find it. Um, uh, where is oh absolute? He said they're number eight in Manhattan. He gave them a four point two five out of wow. five and a whopping four point seven five for the store. He said it's a classic bagel store vibe, salt in the walls with zero frills. Can I say one other thing? Yeah, and it's um, uh, run by, uh, uh, I think, um, a Thai, uh, Southeast Asians, and they do a great job. And one thing about bagels is if you go into a, a bagel shop and they're all round and there's a hole in the center on all of them, forget it. Well, that I mean, that goes it, with one of the so it sounds like you agree with one of the axioms that he delineated here. What was that? Well, I, I mean, I'm not going to repeat all ten, but it's the one that basically says what you said. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, Frank. How you doing, pal? So here you go. In Manhattan, I like Jumbo Bagel on 56th Street and Second Avenue. In Queens, 
You have Utopia Bagel on Utopia Parkway. The best one that I like out of all of those is another one in Astoria called Astoria Bagel on Ditmars and 28th Street. Best bagel. Uh, Yeah, I'm listening. Do you mean you expect me to interrupt you? No, no, you're very, no, no, very nice of you. Anyway, and there's, um, the reason why there's no hole in the bagel is because they're bull bagels. Now, I only know this because I've been doing this all my life, and I've been in the bakery business. A bull bagel means that three three bagels equal one pound. That's a bull. It's a big bagel. And um, so they hand roll it. As far as the the Thai people owning a store, they don't really own stores. What they do, there's a group of Thai people that go around to all the bagel stores, and they charge the owner to make hand-rolled bagels, because a lot of bagels are made by machine. But to get a hand-rolled bagel, you know, you have to be very good at it. Sure. So they they charge the owners like $20 a bag. Bull bagels, you get 36 dozen out of one bag. That means it's a real big bagel. Wow. So they charge $20, $25, $30 maybe today. And they're three times a week because a bagel has to be retarded at least 24 hours. Retarding is putting it in the refrigerator. Right. The my, my cousin used to have a bagel store, bagel station. And he used to say the same thing. He used to say that was, right. the, uh, that was the trick to what he would do. Astoria Bagel Shop, he ranked a 3.83 out of 5, number 23 in Queens, number 98 in New York City. He said the store possesses the sense of an embedded community resource, which is interesting. Uh, thank you, Al. 800-848-9222. Steve's in Brooklyn. Hello, Steve. Hey, Frank, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Likewise. Frank, okay, Frank, I've got a, a bagel store that I think in Manhattan who's got the number one top bagel in the city, which is called Cal Bagel on First Avenue. First and where? First and 51st. First and 50. First, uh, yeah, Tal Bagels in Yorkville, it gave the, he gave them a very high rate r- r- uh, grade. He gave them a 4.08 out of 5, number 19 in Manhattan. He said it's a toasty flavoring without crusty snap, and it sets that bagel experience apart from most. So he gave them a pretty high review. Uh, so I also would love to hear if you have any bagel axioms like the ones that Varley laid out. Uh, again, I'll repeat it quickly. For folks like that uh, gentleman who didn't pay attention the first time I read it. But uh, basically they were uh, – let me pull those up. Uh, I, 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 I put it aside, but I will – I will get that and uh, and repeat them to you. But meanwhile, let me say hello to you, John in Suffolk. Hello, John. Hey, how you doing, Frank? I'm good. So uh love the show. I listen to it every morning. Um, I was interested. I know the other caller just said about Utopia Bagel, what, where Utopia Bagel ranked on it, because a lot of people from Long Island, Queens, always put Utopia Bagel pretty high up there. Yeah. Um, get a high ranking? Yeah, I'm looking for – see, it's it's geographic, so I have to, like – I have to f- click on the – I have to click on the bagel symbol – in the area of Utopia Bagels, I'm not seeing it. I'm sure he did review it, but I am not. Uh, I am not seeing it. Um, but uh, I, I, I'll, I'll keep looking. I'll, I'll keep looking. Uh, and then, and then I would like to say, if you go into a bagel store, and I think it was like number seven on his list, if it's a high frequency, a lot of people, you know, those bagels are going to be fresh. Yeah, yeah. That's that's. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. If 
if you don't see a line and a lot of bagels, it's like, oh, gotta go. These bagels are no good. Yeah, no, I think you're. Uh, I think you. You guys are both right on that one, and it, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. The more turnover, the fresher the bagel. The fresher the bagel, the more people come in. The more people come in, the more turnover. Turnover. I'll read these uh, a couple of these axioms again very quickly, and then I want to know if you have your own bagel axioms. Do not toast a bagel if you know it's fresh. Toasting raises the floor of a bagel but lowers the ceiling. Bagels from appetizing stores are designed to be eaten with locks. Stores that put it put effort into their spread displays generally make good bagels. Higher traffic stores beget frequently fresher bagels. While some bagels are worth waiting for, never underestimate the pleasure of a 30-second bagels transaction. Caraway seed is the best non-standard everything topping. At their peak, bagels are the barbecue of breakfast. Heavy, savory, and almost too messy to bear. An irregularly shaped bagel will almost always taste better than a perfectly round bagel. And if you can smell the bagels, you're in the right place. Josh in Connecticut. Hello. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Nice to talk to you. So I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up and I was, you know, I was raised in New York and I moved to Jersey and lived in a, you know, another suburb. And now I'm back in Connecticut. But when I was a kid, I was brought I was adopted, so I was brought up by a Jewish man. And he taught me how to eat lox on a bagel with cream cheese. Now, I've been always been a connoisseur. I'm a, you know, I'm an eatery guy. You know, I'm a guy that loves to eat different types of foods. You can't put anything in front of me without trying it. Anyway, make a long story short, I don't want to be long winded. Five hundred sixth Avenue, thirteenth street and sixth Avenue, Murray's bagel, number one beyond doubt. Now, I'm Italian. I'm not Jewish. That bagel store is unbelievable. Best I've ever had. Now, this is the axiom. The tomatoes out of season were as ripe and sweet and beautiful as and thick, and they stack. The axiom that I'm trying to add to this is that the bagels were phenomenal. I don't know if you know, uh, Murray's is on that list that you have, but it should be. Well, only, yeah, which, which Murray's? Which location? 13th and 6th. 13th so and 6th. Yeah, let me see here. 5th Avenue. Unbelievable. Uh, never, I've been there several times, and I've never had a problem. And those bagels are not always round. Yeah, They're Murray's bagels, the, it scored very well. He gave them a 4.25 out of 5, with uh, a store being its highest ranking of, with a 4.5 out of 5. He It was number 8 in Manhattan, number 25 in New York City. Chewy, right. chewy but not laborious, a stellar example of the large, hard bagel. That's his review. Right, right. Yeah, that, that sounds close. You know, I even put it to a test. I put bacon one time, and the bacon was like an apple, smoked, chewy. I mean, just crisp, perfect every single time. And they're not outrageous. I mean, you know, I mean, with the locks, they have at least six or seven different Scandinavian and Norwegian locks and smoked fish, every kind of smoked fish. Their display is unbelievable. But the thing about it was it was just so fresh and, delight, you know, de- delightful and delectable. Every time I go, there's a wait. And they're quick. They're good at what they do. They take the order perfectly. Whatever you say, like, you know, I go to places. They're supposed to be all renowned. 
and you tell them what you want, and you don't get what you want. You go to Murray's, you get what you want. Now, it's, uh, I, I've been to Murray's, and I've had a good experience there as well. Uh, yeah, so Matt, Matt Blaze, and I, I just found Utopia at the same time I see that Matt sent it to me. He gave them a 4.5 out of 5, 4.5 across the board, uh, number two in Queens, number three in all of New York City. Bagel of note, spread of note, a bagel that doesn't go hard on toppings yet still distinguishes itself as an everything bagel first. Very interesting. Wayne in Hempstead. Wayne, you have a bagel axiom to add? Yeah, the I have the bagel axiom. Oh, boy. Let me know. The missing axiom. But I just have to just tell you, by the way, I, I, I checked out your links for the, for the Godfather. I still can't find... Uh, I still can't find Sonny in the in the office saying, "Of course I'm listening." Uh, where he says, "Are you listening, Sonny?" Of course I am. Of course, Dad. But it, it's not there. It's not there. I went through everything you gave me. It's not there. All right. Well, it could be the Mandela effect, but uh, we'll save that for another day. What okay. What is the bagel axiom? The missing axiom link is this: if it's not made in a boiled oven with the boil the water boiled, it's not a bagel. Period. Boiled oven with the with the water. I'll give you the background. Okay, I'm the guy that went to the bagels for my family every freaking uh, Sunday morning. Sorry, and I stood in line for an hour to get the bagels, and and I had a peek into the oven, and they had this water boiling special. And by the way, very few have it. If it ain't that, it ain't a bagel. That's period. And I'll give you. I don't know. Did he put just bagels on the list in the Bronx? Just uh, bagels. Just bagels in the Bronx. Yeah. Where in the Bronx is it? Uh, I want to say Hunts Point around. It. it they only. It, it's a factory. They make them for the restaurants, but it's unbelievable. No, according to Matt Blaze, who's examined the list thoroughly, it is not there. Okay, but anyway, they have secret ingredients and they use the boiled method. I don't. I'm not. I'm not an owner, but I'm telling you, you got to try them. Just really. Bagels. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. He gave a very good review. Uh, thank you, Wayne. To Empire Bagels in the Bronx, he says that's the number two in all of uh, the Bronx and number twenty-five in all of New York City. What else did well in the Bronx? Uh, let's see. Oh, number one. Uh, no, that's not, that's Empire Bagel. Well, we'll see. Jimmy in Staten Island. What do you got for me, Jimmy? Yes, Frank. A good place, bagel place on Staten Island is not just bagels on Highland Boulevard and Hills. You must try that. I, I, I no, I've been there many times. Uh, I um, I like that place a lot. It did. It got a mediocre score. That's what I'm saying. I think this guy has something against Staten Island bagel places because he didn't really give any Staten Island bagel places a super high store high score. The best bagel in the Bronx, according to this fella is Bagel Corner, uh, which is number one in the Bronx, number seven in New York City, got a 4.42 overall. And he's selling each of these as an NFT. Uh, That is in the neighborhood of, uh, let's see, looks like it's, um, mm, I can't see, I I can't find it on the map. Uh, Pete is on Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Hey, good morning, Frank. Yeah, on the bagel thing, I originally called for something else, but on the bagel, the one that Gary recommended on Highland Boulevard by Armstrong, I liked very much, and uh, one bagel and uh, bagel and bun on Victory Boulevard. Those are two of my favorites. And I heard you say that he didn't get really high rating, 
to the ones on Staten Island. So that's what I was going to ask you out of that, which one was rated the highest. No, he gave a good review to Bagel and Buns. He says that's the number two bagel on all of Staten Island with a 4.17 score. And uh, he really gave them high high marks for the cream cheese. He said a top instance of cream cheese served cold. It could be the best spread in the city. So that is one he gave a, a high remark to. Wow. And the other thing I wanted to speak to you on, uh, my nephew was laid off of the city after 27 years with the building department. Oh, boy. Did he he question Eric Adams at a press conference? Is that why? Well, no. What what it is is Eric Adams gives a uh, a dispensation to uh, being a performer, and he is a performer. He's performed at the... uh, uh, some great places and at the ballparks that we have. And uh, the thing is, like a catch-22, you know, he's got a lawyer, but he's in like a class action suit. But he stands out unique because he's allowed to perform, but he can't work for the city. Well, that's ridiculous. That is absolutely – I mean, I can't believe we're still talking about this. Hospital – COVID hospitalizations are at their lowest – it's just crazy what's going on. Exactly. But I wanted to ask you if, you know, we could reach out. If we got a lawyer out there, you, you could have him give my number that you have with the screener if uh, a lawyer is interested in becoming famous. Because with my nephew's situation, he stands out. He could perform, but he can't do a job that he has for 27 years that he did remote for a year. So it doesn't make any sense. It's All right, just, Pete. Uh, well, we're putting it out there. Job. Pete, I, I got to run. But if there's a lawyer that wants to help um, and, and his family, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And then uh, Molly has his number. And we will we will uh, find a way to put you guys in touch because that is a real shame. Hey, we'll do the $1,000 Minute next. If you want to try and win $1,000, be the seventh caller to 1-800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, you'll get an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. You can go ahead and call right now. 1-800-848-WABC. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Lynn is on Long Island. Hello there, Lynn. Good morning. This is not my mother-in-law, Lynn, who lives on Long Island, is she? Is it? (laughs) No, I don't think so. No. All right. Okay. Well, um, we just want to avoid any appearance of uh, of nepotism. What part of Long Island do you live in, Lynn? Yes, um, out in eastern Suffolk County. Well, that's where my mother-in-law lives. I'm starting to think maybe you're her. <laughs> that is funny. You know what? I didn't even realize that. That's interesting. Wow. Are, are you in Are you in Mastic? No, no, no. A little bit west of that. All right. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well. Hey, by the way, Frank, I just want to say, just love you. Love your show. You're great. Oh. Thank you. Well, now I'm really hoping you win. And now I know you're not my mother-in-law because she would never say that. (laughs) That's funny. I'm just joking. Nice lady. All right. Um, Okay. Uh, You know the rules, right, Lynn? Yes, I do. Okay. So the um, the uh, I'll tell you, I think these are pretty easy questions. I did a dry run on my sister and my wife. My sister, she got knocked out on question eight. My wife got knocked out on question nine. Everything else I think is pretty easy. So I think you're going to be in good, in good shape here. All right. The timer will begin okay. 
after I ask the first question. You ready to go, Lynn? Yes, I am. What day of the week does Thanksgiving fall on? Thursday. Name three types of apple. Macintosh, Honeycrisp, and Delicious. Your mother's brother's father is what relation to you? Your mother's brother's father. Father. No, your mother's brother's father would be your grandfather. Oh. So. You know, oh, go ahead. No, no, what go ahead. Gonna what were you going to say? No, I was going to say, you know what? It's true what they say. When you're actually playing and you're kind of right on the line, it's, yeah, you, you can't really think quite clearly. Uh, I hear you. I hear. Plus, I know the hour is, is tough, Lynn. Why are you up so early this uh, th- this morning anyway? Um, actually, well, up for work, but, you know, a little bit earlier than usual today, really. It was just one of those mornings, oh, you good. know. Well, we're happy to, yeah. uh, happy that you are. I'm sorry you didn't win, but we are. If you hold, we are going to give you a complimentary uh, The Other Side of Midnight t-shirt if you want one. Yes. All right. I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, Molly, who's been getting pretty good reviews from the callers today, she will take your information and uh, hopefully get it to the right place. Uh, and then we will get you a T-shirt. And then Molly, make sure to send me Lynn's information so I can make sure she's not my mother-in-law trying to scam a free T-shirt. Uh, by the way, uh, Philippe, I never did get Vinny's address the other day. If you could send me that information uh, when whenever you can. Philippe is uh, masquerading as Alex Barnard this week. Uh, Alex Barnard on a well-deserved vacation. Hey, coming up on the Bernie and Sid show today, it's going to be very interesting. You got uh, Sarah Palin, the former governor of Alaska, who's now running for Congress. She's going to be on in the six o'clock hour. I'm going to be listening to that interview. Uh, She was just endorsed by Donald Trump and he endorsed her. I think she has got a pretty good chance of winning. So I think it's going to be interesting. Um, It's going to be a fascinating interview, certainly. Also, Congressman Lee Zeldin, who's running for governor, he's going to be on the show. And um, we're going to talk with we're going to talk with uh, or they're going to talk with Bo Deedle as well. So uh, Bernie and Sid, best morning show in all of New York. And they do a great job. You should be sure to listen from six to ten. Hey, so I've been chronicling for you my my ever increasing number of battles with the hospital billing people for my son's birth. So they sent another bill to our house for his birth. I mean, we've been billed 20 times so far. And this time they're billing us for an attending physician that we uh, that I didn't even meet. I don't know who this doctor was. It was not a name that I recognized. And they were complaining. The hospital was complaining because the insurance company wouldn't pay it. They knocked this back. Now, why would the insurance company not pay it? Because they had on his hospital bill Carmine O'Brien. That's what they sent the bill as. Carmine O'Brien. They wanted Carmine O'Brien to pay for this doctor that nobody's ever met. And then, so 
the hospital billing people are on the phone with my wife saying, um, well, can you get this straightened out? Can you can you get something? She says, no, I'm not going to spend an hour and a half on the phone with the insurance company because you sent the bill in the wrong name. You can do it. And then ultimately, I think that's what they're going to do. They're going to resubmit it under his proper name. So uh, we'll see where that goes. All right. Uh, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame next. If you want to be heard on any subject for 15 seconds, you are welcome to be heard at on any subject for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is one of our new theme songs for The Other Side of Midnight, was for courtesy of listener Steve G. Thank you, Steve. I find this very, very hip. I like this a lot. If you're just tuning in, uh, there is a national proposal to ban public subsidies for sports stadiums. I'm all for it. Max Blumenthal doesn't buy the official story on Russia and Ukraine. I collided with another car inadvertently in a parking lot yesterday. I left a note, just so happens, the car belonged to the son of a friend of mine. And uh, New Jersey has a proposal to not start school before 8.30. I'm all for that. Uh, you can always email me if you want your mail to be read on Tuesdays, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. There's a new UFO video out there, new UFO photos uh, from a U.S. warship that was followed by two glowing UFOs. My wife and I are considering consolidating to one car. Eric Adams never ceases to amaze me with the foolish things that he's doing. Dennis Sprague believes that Glenn Miller was not killed as the result of a conspiracy. I'm also thinking of getting a pocket protector and anything that I see in an infomercial. Uh, there's a new bagel ranking spot uh, map which you can look at on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Morano fan. And Sarah Palin is coming on the Bernie and Sid show. 
That now you're caught up. And to catch you up further, we have one open line if you want to be heard for 15 seconds. All you have to do is dial 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. It is time for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Eddie is in Nassau. Hello, Eddie. Joe Biden's was a bagel, the one with the hole in it. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Great show. Frank, that new hospital bill, I think the doctor walked by the room and glanced in, and that's billable. (laughs) 800-848-9222. Lenny in Fort Lauderdale. Yes, my bagel axiom. Never cut a bagel in half. It ceases to become a bagel. So how do you eat it? You got no, not 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 you do you cut it in half the long way, not in half down the middle. Ah. Once you take the hole out of it, it's no longer a bagel. Interesting it a sandwich. Oh, got it, got it. Interesting. Frank on Staten Island. Good morning, Frank. Uh, good show. Um, I can't thank Curtis Lewa. He makes me sick. But hey, you the one. You you almost a godfather. <laughs> thank you, Frank. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Jay in Cincinnati. Wake up and smell the bagels. I want an everything bagel with nothing. All right. 800-848-WABC. Four open lines if you want to squeeze in before we run out of time. Cheech in Howard Beach. The general, I mean, the mayor of the city, looked very uneasy at that press conference yesterday. Uh, New York, congratulations for voting for this uh, guy. Have a great day. 800-848-9222. Victor is in Manhattan. Uh, Joe Biden is so underwhelming and tepid that he actually makes the late Calvin Coolidge sound loquacious and seem to suffer from hyperactivity, hyperactive disorder. Okay. 800-848-9222. Six open lines if you want to try and squeeze in. Anthony and Edison. Uh, yes, good morning. It's uh, great to see that uh, Sarah Palin's going to join in and help the Patriot cause and the Red Wave and be involved again. We're going to need her after this illegitimate disaster of the Biden district the, the Democrats administration. The, the Democrats are horrible and when they're in charge. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. I eat my bagel with eggs, sausage, and cheese, and a touch of butter. Tony on Staten Island. Sizzle moron, sizzle moron, sizzle moron, sizzle moron. 800-848-9222. you got to give the guy credit for persistence. Roberta on Staten Island. Hi, uh, the everything um, mini bagels are really good, and not just bagels. You're not eating so much uh, bread at once. You know, that's a good point. That's a good point. Now, this guy didn't rank every uh, uh, mini bagels, but that's a good point. I've noticed that. 800-848-WABC. Ray in Raritan. You hear a lot of different things about the war in Ukraine. One thing's for certain, Putin don't care what he's bombing. He's bombing everything. He's all out war. 800-848-9222. Mark in Westchester. Yes, Frank, thank you again for taking my call. I just want to say how much I love my daughters and how much we love your show. I work between the hours that your show is on, so I listen to your entire show, and we love it, and we love you. Well, uh, thank you. I love you right back, Mark. Thank you. Pablo in Brooklyn. 
Oh, yeah. Cinnamon raisin bagel. With hand, uh, roast beef and twist on a cinnamon raisin bagel. That's the best way to go. That's why New York is New York. Is a lid for every pot. Al, Al is in Coney Island. Uh, Julius in Rome. Yeah, hey, just finding out as Ernest Shackleton is one of my greatest historical heroes, they've just found the wreckage of the endurance. The bottom of the Weddell Sea in Antarctica. Yeah, I talked about that at the time. And finally, Steve in Brooklyn. Forget the bagel, eat the flagel. Flagels are quite good. I, I have had quite a few flagels in my life. All right, the WABC Early News is next with the great Deb Valentine. Bernie and Sid coming back at 6. I'll be back at 1 a.m. You want to stay in touch, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com, or find me on Twitter, at Frank Morano. Uh, we have an action-packed show for you tomorrow. This one you're not going to want to miss. Frank Morano, good day. The Charlie Kirk Show, entertaining and informative talk. What Joe Biden.